Mike Turbo Hughes, thank you very much for joining me on episode nine of Between the Levees. Let's start off where it began. Where were you born, sir? I was born in uh, uh, Rhineland Falls, Lonsdale, Germany. Um, Dad was in the military. He was stationed in a little satellite base of Lonsdale. Uh, he was in the Army. And I was born there. They didn't have a small little base. They didn't have a, it was a supply depot back near Vietnam uh, in 71. They didn't have a, uh, a hospital there on base. So I was actually born in a civilian hospital in Rhineland Falls, Germany. What was your father's MOS in the military? Uh, Sailor Corps. Uh, he was basically a, uh, you ever watch Radar O'Reilly on MASH? That's pretty well it. Uh, funny story to that is his uh, uh, dad got drafted, uh, fresh out of college, and uh, uh, he got drafted, and he was dating my mother, and he basically asked my mother to marry him, he always said, because he knew she came from modest upbringings, and he figured that uh, that she could use his life insurance when he went to Vietnam and got killed easier than anybody else, but true story, that's what he always said, Yeah. and so he asked her to marry him, and he went through basic and uh, came home. And then he went through AIT down in, uh, in Texas, and they were training in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came out one day, and it was rainy. It was nasty. And he said he really didn't want to go crawl through the mud again. And they asked if anybody had any clerical skills. Well, during college, my dad worked at the rec center to pay his way through college, uh, you know, renting uh, pool balls and bowling shoes and things like that, you know, and uh, resetting the bowling machines and worked evenings. And he found he could make a lot of extra money with a portable typewriter typing term papers. Yeah. So he typed term papers for like a nickel a page or whatever it was back in the day. And uh, he got really good at typing. And uh, so and he, and he had college. So when they asked if anybody had any clerical skills, he said, you learn not to volunteer for anything in the army. But he said anything had to be better than crawling in the mud. Sure. <clears throat> so he raised his hands and he got in there and he said, they set him down in front of a brand new IBM Selectomatic. And he said he'd never even touched an electric typewriter. <laughs> and he said he found out he could fly. And yeah. they heard they heard him typing, and they actually came over and they, they kind of uh, uh, separated him out and took him over and uh, introduced him to Roger, the guy he'd be you know working for. The guy that was kind of an interviewer, I guess you'd say, for a clerk, and uh, he was a colonel. And he said he was getting ready to be deployed to Germany, and his aide or clerk or whatever that is had rotated out, and he he needed somebody, and they had a little conversation, and Dad took a few little exercise tests and all, and. The guy liked him and took him with him, and uh, that's where Dad spent his time was in in Germany, basically being a uh, uh, I don't know if he was a personal clerk to the to the guy or like a company clerk or whatever, but that's what he did was he processed all the paperwork. Which he said he found out what the bad gigs. He said when you're in a supply depot and you're the guy processing the paperwork, you know he said you get a lot of leeway because he said papers can either go on the top or the bottom of the pile real quick. Right. So that was that was the long story about how I ended up here, and of course uh. In 70, I was born in 71. In 72, they came back to the States. Mm -hmm. And uh, how long was he in the service? Uh, whatever your standard draft time was back in, somewhere between two and three years. Okay. Uh, he didn't re-up again. He, he thought about it, but, you know, the, that Roger, that guy he worked with, couldn't guarantee that he'd stay, you know, out of the warnings of the conflict then was you know, pretty highly escalated. And, uh, you know, he figured he wouldn't want to push fate. He'd take his, he'd, he'd sure. take his going out. Sure. What did your mom do growing up? Uh, for a long time, stay-at-home mother. When my dad got back from the military, he uh, his, his his degree, his college degree, was in agricultural business, and uh, first uh, took a job with the Job Corps, which is what he had before he left, as a as an instructor, 
and you know he always wanted to farm so he came back and uh invested in some land we uh, my family always had a, a small farm mm-hmm. and uh he bought like 500 acres and you know back in the day it was a lot uh him and my uncle farmed that and then you know he gave up that job went full-time farming and then he became he, he became president of the farm bureau in the 70s okay um in somewhere in the late seventies, around seventy four to seventy six, I can't remember exactly when I was a little kid. Uh, he went broke farming. And that was before FDIC type. I don't know what the the initials are for the farmers insurance after the Wayne Crite deal in the in the eighties. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, he went. Uh, he he was playing his grain in the commodities some way. You know, and farmers, you know, a lot of times could defer their in, their payments out to interest only for so many times and. He was banking his money and banking his grain through the 70s. And I mean, things were looking good. And, and he went to the elevator and he talked to the guy. And the guy said, Look, Mike, he said, you know, prices are going through the roof. He said, I'd hold on. And yeah. So dad came, dad came home and him and one of his farmer buddies talked about it. And he said, You know, I, the other guy said, I don't feel right about it. He said, I'm going to go get mine out. He said, I just, I just don't feel like the, he said, I'm nervous. And dad said, Well, he's always been good to us. He said, I'm going to ride it out. Of course, you know, dad was young, college educated, cocky. He was going to make it big. You know how that is. And, yeah. and my dad was a good businessman. My dad made a, my dad before he died made a pretty good fortune just, you know, dabbling in this and that. But, you know, like all good businessmen, especially when you're young, you take a few too many risks. And he took a few too many on that one. And I never will forget the next day that that friend is came flying up the driveway in a four door green Chevy Nova and uh, came flying up in the yard. And we were all wondering what was going on because I was a little kid, yeah, little kid. And uh, dad jumped in the car and took off. And I remember he came back after dark and seen the lights come up the driveway real slow. And true story, not being dramatic, this is the only time in my history that I ever seen my father truly cry. I seen him get pretty choked up one time over one of his dogs that I ran over. But I really seen him cry. He got out of the car. He walked up. My mom was sitting on the porch steps. He fell down on his knees, put his head in her lap and cried like a baby. Yeah. And we, we lost a hundred and... I can't, we lost over a hundred thousand dollars worth of grain hmm. in, one, in one afternoon. And, uh, uh, so that was the end of the farming. Uh, my dad did a few businesses here and there. How, how old were you at the time? Oh, probably four, maybe five. Cause we, we moved down here on the family farm when I was seven and mm-hmm. dad tried, dad tried a few businesses for a couple of years and, and uh, moderate success, but the late seventies was a tough time economically. And, uh, uh, you know, high interest rates and whatever, you know, anybody that looks back or old enough to remember knows that seventies were a lot tougher times than what we're actually experiencing right now with gas prices. And, yeah. you know, we had, we had farm embargoes on grain and things like that. So, you know, he carved out a little bit of this and the other, and he had to have a job and he took a job with the uh, state of Illinois department of corrections and another one of them luck of fates, I guess, if you want to call it that way on, you know, your luck rides on somebody else's tragedy. Shortly after he took a job with the Department of Corrections, which wasn't a high-paying job, they had that big riot up there at one of the prisons up north in Illinois, and a few guards got killed. And all of a sudden, the union or you know kicked in or however what happened, and I mean prices shot up. So you know the, those the jobs all of a sudden became pretty lucrative. And you know living in Illinois, I live in extreme southern Illinois. I'm sitting right here now, standing at the back door, looking out my window at the river. Mm-hmm. So you know I'm what a couple thousand feet from Kentucky. And uh, if you look at the way Illinois is, I dip down into Kentucky. Uh, we relate more to that cross-section than we do to Illinois. But everything in Illinois is not segregated out, so all your state jobs and things like that are based on your standard cost of living 
per state. Well, we got Chicago and Cook County. So, you know, right now, rent up there is two and $3,000, I'm sure, just by looking at what prices are where you're at in Nashville and things. So when you come down here in a rural farming area, and, well, you know, Illinois has got the either the second or third largest prison system in the United States next to California and New York, because obviously we're one of the biggest cities, which generate a lot of the criminals. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't put prisons in big cities. You put prisons in rural areas and where you got plenty of land. Right. All the prisons are back in southern Illinois down here where I live in the rural areas, and they're all based on pay for average pay in the state. Well, those bigger cities up there, St. Louis, Champaign, Chicago, Springfield, they run the cost of living way up. So we live a relatively cheap cost of living down here where, you know, there's 3,400 people in the county I live in. And there's uh, 650 people in the town I live in. It's the only town in the county. And it's one of the largest counties square area-wise in the state. So we get a nice little rural life. You've heard about, you know, if you've ever been around hunting or fishing, you've heard about Pope County and the Ohio River, Smithland Pool. Mm -hmm. So we live a pretty farm-based rural existence. And these guys that get these jobs would like the state, you know, benefit from a pretty high. Uh, so anyway, the, the 80s was good to my father. Uh, he made good good money, had a few side businesses, always had a side hustle. We got a family campground we've had. My grandpa's bought it in 37. It's right here on the Ohio River. We mm-hmm. own a pretty good, pretty good track of land along the river. So dad developed the campground into more of a modern, from an old fishing camp uh, where Got a bunch of old guys sitting around drinking beer, running the trot lines, and using the outhouse to mm-hmm. more of a, what you would think of a family campground, uh, you know, cabins and stuff. He developed that, hit a few good businesses, get a, got a few good advisements from the stock market, and rode that through the 80s and 90s. And, you know, when he passed away in uh, 15, uh, he left a pretty good little nest egg for my mother. Yep. So pretty successful in life. And when you look back, it's all those little, uh, so all those little forks in the road where things look dark that always determine your, your, your path to the future. You know, sometimes uh, I, I remember that Morgan Freeman was in that uh, movie with Jim Carrey, uh, Bruce Almighty. And um, if you looked at that DVD to him and you watched the extra scenes, the deleted scenes, God's trying to show Bruce how he messed up mm-hmm. when he granted everybody's prayers and how that ain't a good thing. And he's showing him all these different things where he messed up. And Lee looks over and he sees, uh, a, a, a picture of Lance Armstrong winning the Tour de France. And he said, but did I do that? And he said, no, no, that was me and him. And uh, he said, well, but, but, but he had cancer or whatever, you know, and he said, what I'm trying to tell you is it takes some mighty dark pictures to paint a bright, it takes some mighty dark colors to paint a bright picture. Sure. Um, you know, and you kind of look at an old Terry Redland picture or a, uh, uh, who's that guy that does the Christmas backgrounds and stuff. They always make, you know, they, they, you know, Thomas Kincaid. Okay. When you look at their pictures, you see the light so bright, but you don't realize the picture, you're not seeing a glowing light. You're just seeing a white or red or yellow with a bunch of dark backgrounds. Right. And so I think that's something that I've seen in my career. I'm sure you've seen it in yours. When you're in the heat of it and you're looking forward at, at a forking road, you know, some of those are some of the darkest times in your life. You know, some of the most depressing, some of the most frustrating. Uh, you're stuck someplace or you're in a rut. But when you get out of it and you look back five, ten years later, it really wasn't that long of a snapshot in time. And the lessons you learned from it and the, the things you benefited from from where you were at have really prepared you for, you know, Whatever the success next. you generated. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. 
Well, what is uh, what's your mother up to these days? Oh, man, she used her time after we got in school through the 80s and she educated herself. And uh, she um, got several uh, degrees in uh, her child care, child psychology. Okay. And she ended up working uh, in the uh, school department. My grandmother was during the 80s, during the Nancy Reagan times. My dad's mother was, she was in my, my dad's mother was something else now. She was, she was a wannabe. She was, uh, you know, she, she was, she was the person that wanted to turn a, uh, uh, a, 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 a into a silk purse. And so she was into all the lodges and all this stuff. And some way around, she got on the board of directors when they started up the Head Start program. And my mother fell into that due to her education. And that's what got my mom started down that road of education. Mm -hmm. And mom ended up as a teacher with Head Start. And then she ended up working in the administration field. She ended up being a coordinator, which is like a principal for Head Start. And then she transferred in the public school system. And she's semi-retired now, but she still works with uh, autistic kids, mm -hmm. um, things like that. Uh, she, uh, I think the last gig she had out there was, you know, because like I said, she's semi-retired now, especially since my dad passed. But uh, they assigned somebody with like a developmentally challenged child uh, to help it through school. And so she goes and helps it get on the bus, follows the person through their day, mm -hmm. um, helps them with any developmental issues they might have. And, uh, she does that until they, they either, uh, reach the peak of their development or, you know, finish grade school. She don't go into high school and stuff. She does like up through fifth grade, I think something like that. And, sure. uh, so she finds that satisfying because she gets to work with one individual and watch them succeed. You know, so many times she, for a while she got into the, uh, the, I guess you'd say the the I don't know how to say it. It was, it was like the, the DCFS, and she was a site coordinator where she would go out and or a site assessment or something. I can't remember what it was called, but she was the person that went to the house to find out if the child when the complaints were made to check on the child. Right. And and you know she said that was I, I remember when she done that. She done it for like two years, and she just stressfully could not handle it going into some of these environments that these children are being raised in and. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to make a determination, is this just a honest, is this just a, 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 a family just struggling and, and, and the kid's not in any danger or, you know, that's a lot of stress. And she tried that for a little while, but so she's basically been into child development and, and uh, stuff like that. And, and I think now I don't, I don't know that she's done anything in the last probably two years. My mom's like a big child within herself. Yeah. A lot of times to, a lot of times to a, to a, to a fault. I mean, you know, bless her heart. She she's a lot of times just too gullible. She loves people too much. She's one of them eternal optimists that everybody's a good person, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and that was not a, you, you gotta be a little tougher to be in that environment. You know, my mom's more of a caregiver and a nurturer rather than go in and make a determination on, you know, those kind of things. Cause it just, she just couldn't live with it. Uh, what about siblings? I got one brother, one brother. Uh, he's a, uh, He's always worked pretty much in the coal industry. He's dabbled in a few things, but he um, works up here in Southern Illinois. He worked for years for Kerr-McGee Coal, which uh, the Glacier Mine up here became Bob Murray Coal, uh, Murray Energy. And, you know, they got they got towboats and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he the last job he had, I think he's back. If he hasn't retired, he's fixing to because he's got a business proposition he wants to go into with uh, selling equipment and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he moved up by St. Louis up into a little place called Red Butt, I think it is. And he works up at that Prairie State Power Plants, one of them new uh, power plants that kind of on the green. I think I think it is when they opened it. I think it was like one of the greenest fossil fuel power plants 
um, sits right on top of the coal mine. They mine the coal out from under the plant, send it up. There's no transportation of it and stuff. Pretty, pretty high tech deal. And he was a mine manager up there, worked underground. Okay. Well, I grew up right outside New Orleans, so I imagine our upbringings were a little bit different. Uh, what was it like growing up? Well, I'm going to tell you, when my dad went broke farming through the 70s, it was gosh damn rough. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, typical rule, American farm life. Uh, the little area I was at was always about 20 years behind. So if, if you want to know what it was like growing up in, in, in Golconda here, the little town I live in, uh, just turn on an episode of Andy Griffith. And I'm not joking. <laughs> I, I mean, I, right down to the comedy, you know. I mean, I, there, there's not one person I watch. I'm a big fan of Andy Griffith. And I watch pretty well daily. And there's not one person that I can't remember somebody when I was growing up. Uh, you know, right now, we lived up on the when, when I was young on there before we moved to the family farm down here in the middle of the county. We lived up northern in the county up there. And uh, there was a little between here, between Galcada, the only town really. And uh, oh, there's a few wide spots in the road that might have a stop, but really the only place to even buy a soda pop in this county is Galconda. Mm-hmm. And but about halfway between where we live, Galconda, a little old store back in the day that a friend of my dad's guy Rose and Rose's Grocery, and it was the typical old shotgun building, deli in the back, one man ran it, no air conditioning, pot belly stove. You'd go in there in the winter time, that old pot belly stove would be just roaring and within five foot of the stove you'd be burning up and over in the corner of the place you'd have to look and make sure everything wasn't froze um you know air conditioning uh, no air conditioning uh, fans going it had the old screen wooden the wooden screen door that had uh the the colonial bread or bunny bread or coca-cola or whatever the little metal thing on the front you'd walk in and the you know be be barefoot you know and no shirt on a pair of shorts as a kid and you know you always had a you'd always tell you get a sucker on the way out it was it was like the old, what you'd see on the Waltons or something, you know, the old country store. You'd hear mm-hmm. the screen door creak when you open it. And back in the back, you know, you had a deli. And I always remember because we'd go in there and he'd, he'd make you, he didn't, he wouldn't just sell lunch, but he'd make you a sandwich. You know, so we'd go in and, and we'd, we'd all get a sandwich for lunch if we were there on the farm or something, you know, going passing through. And, um, you know, sold the bottles of pop out of the cooler that you slid open and had the bottle open on the side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so you get a glass bottle of pop. It was that kind of environment, um, very rural, very farm-based, but very poor. I mean, we didn't have a lot. When Dad went broke farming, he didn't uh, go, he didn't declare bankruptcy. You know, he went to all the banks, and he told them, look, we can do this one or two ways. He said, I can declare bankruptcy, and you don't get nothing. Or he said, you can bear with me. He said, I promise you. He said, I don't know when it'll be, but he said, I will pay you every dime I owe you. And we struggled there until we just couldn't make it. Dad finally got that job with the state. We sold off the farm, sold off all the equipment, moved down here onto the family farm uh, where my grandparents lived into that fishing camp. And remember, how old were you at that point? This all started somewhere between four and six years old, and it went all the way through till I was early preteen, probably 12, 14. Right. Uh, I remember when it ended. I don't remember when it began. I'd have to ask my parents when well, my mom my dad's dead but i'd have to ask my mom for the exact dates but i know dad went to work for the state in either 77 or 78 so and it was only a so i'd say 76 or so is when that you know grain crash happened and mm-hmm. uh you know and and we'd bought cattle so we bought cattle high and then all of a sudden the grain fell out cattle are low i mean it was it was just a perfect storm of a mess and right and my dad my dad had us knee deep in the middle of all of it and so when we uh we finally went through all all, all that mess 
uh, and it was very humbling. It really brought us together as a family. My dad never, he worked all the time. He always had side hustles. He owned fish markets. He owned restaurants, uh, catering things. I mean, gas stations. He owned two gas stations. Back then, service stations, garages, you know, with, on the side. Uh, worked all the time. So it, we never really seen dad much unless we were working with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he wasn't doing that, he was hunting. And literally, there was there was a few years there that pretty much if it wasn't walking before we put it on the table, we didn't eat it. <laughs> um, but he never took a hand out, never took money from my grandparents the only thing he ever took was my grandfather gave him a little cabin down here and that, that was you know a, a literal cabin on the river with an outhouse and a cistern no running water we had no sink in the house um and that was one of the last things we got was toiletry uh because there again he put all of his money to paying off that debt and you know in 1986 we all got in the car for the truck and we all loaded up and we drove to ridgeway and my father paid the last bank, the last bit of money that he owed him. And that's when life started getting better for us is uh, because then he put all his money into fixing up a house and then he started developing that campground. And, you know, the, we got city water in to where we had running water and, and uh, you know, finally got a toilets and, you know, all that stuff. So I, I went, you know, the better part of my youth there from about, let's say, five years old to about 10 or 12 years old that we literally didn't even have an indoor, you know, plumbing. At, at some point we did. Uh, but you had to flush with a bucket, you know, because our, our water came out of a cistern and it wasn't big enough to put a pump in, you know, and then we, then we, then we made those cistern bigger, dug a, dug a bigger one. And then we started hauling water. So life slowly got better over the, over that 10 year period. But that 10 year period, I mean, it was rough because like I said, dad was the type that he was not going to take charity. He wasn't going to take a handout and he wasn't going to leave the banks and go on, on, on bankruptcy. He was going to pay back everything he owed. And that was our, sole mission i mean we didn't do nothing we we lived a lot poorer than what my dad's paycheck reflected right just because and and people didn't really realize that we did that out of choice because my dad was going to pay back his debt he was not going to uh he was not going to walk away from anything and you said it was 86 when he paid it off and things started turning around yep yep 86 you know what else happened in 86 was that you were born Yes, sir. <laughs> well, there you go. Very good. Well, year. I, I remember shortly after that, of course, the first thing we done was dug a lot bigger cistern, got a well, actually uh, drilled a well where we had good water. Um, you know, so we, we started modernizing everything, thank God. And, uh, you know, it's the little things that didn't take long, a few months, you know, I mean, after we got straightened up. And because slowly as he started paying those banks off, we started living better. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like everything was that first couple of years. You know, we, we lived a little better as it goes on. I'm kind of condensing 10 years into, mm-hmm. you know, a, a minute or two. <clears throat> but um, uh, when it finally did all get up, off of his back, I remember the first, the first big thing we done was one Christmas he came in and we went down and, and he bought a big, one of the old, if you remember them, 12 foot fiberglass satellite dishes back in the early days of satellite television. Okay. And we bought our first color television. It was a big 27 inch cabinet Zenith, mm-hmm. you know, had stereo remote control. Oh my mm-hmm. God. And we got a, a, a top loading forehead VCR. All right. Oh, I think he paid like $800. For these. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and, uh, and that was our big, and, and I remember him telling us, you know, we went out and we, we went out to eat and we went over to the uh, store and we bought all, we bought that stuff. And he told us, he said that uh, 
you know, he apologized to my mother for everything we'd been through and how, how we'd work, and, you know, and we were going to start trying to live a little better. And, and the first thing he got us all was entertainment, <laughs> you know? So gotcha. it, it, it was good. You know, it was a good way to grow up. It really, it made you appreciate. And, and I tell you what it did do. It, it, it I, I never tried, and this is not, I never tried to, you know, to live above my means. So somebody was talking the other day, you know, now we've got uh, where I, where I work has got, programs you know when we take a deck in and and bring them into the wheelhouse um we we've got you know financial counseling if they want to because you know we're actually doubling somebody's income right off the bat yeah you know when i went from well actually when i went from pilot to or make to pilot i actually took a cut and pay because i went to a different division of our company uh but you know when i moved into the wheelhouse i never lived any different I always lived the same. I live in the same house that I moved in. My my grandparents' house. They they died and they died in eighty five and eighty seven, and they had a house here in the center of the farm. And I graduated high school in eighty nine, and my dad gave me my grandparents' old house. My my wife still live here today. I'm on our third remodel. Hopefully our last. We finally done this one right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never had a house payment. I've never, but I but I've never had a nice fancy house. You know, it's a, it's a nice place to live. It's a good house. Uh, built me a nice garage. Only had about three new vehicles in my life. Usually, I buy used. And you know, that's, that's kind of the way my dad raised me. He, he, you know, my dad went through a time when they had no money. He never grew up real rich, but my grandfather, you know, pretty, pretty all right. Right. Um, but you know, he went from you know all right to nothing, and then built himself back up to all right. And then you know, when he got the kids out of the house, made some good investments through the nineties, he re- he retired. You know. Fairly well off. I mean, not not rich, but you know, very comfortable. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he retired at fifty two years old. If that tells you anything, he retired at fifty two and 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 uh, you know and and lived lived very comfortably, very comfortably up until you know, he passed. And uh, I think that kind of stuck with me. You know, I've never been one to try to live above my means. Um, right. You know, so so there again, that's one of those things that you know when you look back, somebody looked at you, oh my god, that's so tragic because uh, you had to use an outhouse, you know, or you. You know, you had to use a, a bucket in the house when it was too cold or at night or something. You know, you'd be surprised what those things teach you, Tim. Yeah, no, it, it does add some perspective for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, so you said you graduated high school in 89. What was your academic career? Were you drawn to anything in school growing up? No, no, I pretty well always knew. Well, I, I knew I was going to do two things. My dad wanted me to go to work for the state because, you know, through the 80s there, after my dad got his job with the, with the Department of Corrections, uh, he got his brother a job, his best friend a job, or uh, you know, uh, our family did. Mm-hmm. And then his his other brother went into the parks and recreation side of things, and and uh, so my whole family, basically in that time frame, all uh, went to work for the state of Illinois. And that was kind of what I was just assumed to do because that's just what everybody else in the family done. I wasn't drawn there though. I didn't, you know, if you've ever known anybody's worked in the prison system, um, that changes people. You're around the worst people in the world in a place they don't want to be. Right. Um, and, you know, you, you've seen it in your own life. You typically take on the personality of the type of people that you hang out with every day. Right. And so when you're in that kind of environment, you become very cynical. And, you know, everybody there is playing the angles, playing the game, and you're there to stop them. So you kind of become hard and jaded and very cynical. I watched my father over my my youth uh, change dramatically, and all the all the people in my family changed. 
and they were just very hard and skeptical and 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 not as compassionate as probably should have been. And maybe maybe that's to a good thing some to some degrees. I think sometimes we should all be a little more guarded. Um, but I just wasn't feeling it. And you know, I couldn't go to work there until I was 21. And but I, I always when I was a kid, you know, I sat right here on the river and I, I played in the front yard every day and I grew up on the on the on the boats running trot lines and you know, I grew up in a campground right there on the river and I always seen them boats. And back in the day, the old locks were still in this lower end of the Ohio. So we had lock and dam 51 here, about two miles above my house. So there was always a lot of delay there. And I remember all the boats shoved in. And mm-hmm. I remember my dad making, uh, I, think, I think it was back, back then, it was like five or $10 a trip to go out and pick them all up in a John boat, run them into town to the local bars. Okay. You know, that's, that's back when everybody still got off the boats, you know, and, uh, and bring them back to the boat that night. And uh, so I, I always, I always liked the boats and, and, you know, I'd always tell my mom I wanted to do it. And uh, we knew some people that did it. Uh, a lot of people in this little community work on the rivers. And so I'd sit there and watch those boats. And, and, and I always told my mom, I said, I, I'm going to do that. <clears throat> so there wasn't a question. I didn't put a lot of energy into high school. Matter of fact, I was not making stellar grades at one point and uh, uh, not from lack of ability, <laughs> just from lack of care. Right. And, and uh, the guidance counselor called me in and, and uh, her and the principal were concerned, you know, small town, remember that, everybody knows everybody. And uh, she actually had my parents come in. And it was kind of a funny story. She wanted to hold me back another, another semester the next year. And my dad said, why? And she goes, well, she said, this coming, this next semester, uh, he's got to pass every class. And dad said, oh, okay. And she was well, he, he he's never done that. And that's all. So if let me get this right, if if he if you hold him back another semester, then he's guaranteed he won't graduate with his class and he'll graduate midterm next year. She said, Yeah. And he said, But if you give him a chance to pass every class and he pulls it off, then he graduates with his class. She goes, Well, yeah, but we just don't feel like that'd be the 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 there'd be a lot of stress and pressure to put on him. Mm-hmm. And dad had looked at her and told him, she said, sign him up for all whatever, whatever it was back then, all those seven classes. And and I and I passed them all. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not with stellar grades, but I passed them all. But, you know, I just knew I wasn't going to further my career academically at that point. And so, you know, I graduated May 26th. And I think it was. Uh, so I went out with all my buddies. I think three of us, four of us maybe loaded up in a car. We all went around putting applications at towing companies. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I got a call June 3rd. Uh, I went down and went through orientation, got on the boat, and uh, been there ever since. I got a call when I was, right after, right after I was 21, I was making a lock here right here close. And my dad had chased me down back in. There wasn't no cell phone. And he, I, I, they were waiting. They said, when I got to the lock, which wasn't uncommon back then, they said, is, is Mike on there? And the captain said, yeah. And, he said, well, he needs to get off and call his family. He needs to call home. And I'm saying, you know, first thing you think is, oh, oh crap. What's, you know, when, when the locks do that for you, there's a reason. Right. You know, and, and uh, uh, so I climbed up the lock wall and I went and made a phone call. My dad told me, he said, you know, if you want to go to work, you got to get you got to get in the bus and go up to the academy Monday. And this was like, I don't know, Friday or Saturday. I'm like, oh, crap. You know, so I was basically going to have to jump boat and get the car and go. Right. And, uh, so I, 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 I went over to the wall and hollered to the cat and I said, look, I, I got to make a call. Can you give me a few minutes? He said, I'll give you 15 minutes. I'm leaving. I said, okay. So I called my wife up and uh, of course, you know, we're young. We got married young. And uh, I, I asked her, I said, what do you want to do? But 
when you're that age and look up, you're, you're just a deckhand. Right. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think that's, I, I admire anybody that made a career being a deckhand, but you know, you're, you're in an entry level position and you're young and you've seen your whole, there's a, there's a pressure, your whole family works in this field and you're expected to follow in your father's footsteps. Of course, everybody is. I like to agree. Mm-hmm. And I never will forget the decision we had to make. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking this is one of the most critical decisions in our young life. And we made it at 15 minutes at mm-hmm. 11 o'clock at night, yeah. standing on a lock wall in the middle of the room. Right. And, you know, my wife told me, she said, and we, we talked about that personality change. And there's a reason that people in law enforcement, and, and, and if you know anybody in law enforcement or a prison guard or anything, the divorce rate's very high in those fields. Yeah. And, I, and I know why. I watched my families all go through it. And my wife told me, she said, I don't want to live that way. She said, you know, and, and you know, what you had there was a very well, not, not a high paying, but a very well paying job with the state with good benefits, um, good medical. You know, I mean, they, at, the, at the time they were they were they were cream of the crop job if you were you know just a normal working guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there and we had to make. And she told me she said I just she said we'll do it if you want to, but she said I just really don't want to live that way. And I said okay. So I called my dad. I told him I said no, I'm done. And he said, you don't know how hard it is to get one of these jobs, son. He said uh, if you turn it down, he said you'll never get this offer again. And I told him I said well, you know, that, that's fine. And my dad never really, I don't think, understood that. I, he never understood what I did. He was always so, he, and, and later in life, toward the end, he started accepting my success. Um, but he, he never really understood why I didn't follow number one and what everybody else in the family done. Uh, number two, he couldn't understand why I gave up that security. Right. At something that I had to carve my way out of. So I had no family in the river, so I didn't have those inherent connections. And then as I did start succeeding, I almost, and I started making more money than him. You know, I almost think that there was a little bit of, of, of uh, uh, you know, he, my father, you'd have to know my father, right? We'll get into all that. But, you know, I look back and I think, you know, I don't know if he was really, I think in one way he was proud that I was succeeding, but in another way, he didn't like it that I was doing it on my own. Because my dad was truly one of the old school people where he is the patriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember one time, one, and it's probably there again, probably help you put it in unless it fits someplace. But one of the biggest arguments me and my dad ever had, and we were down in his basement, you know, playing pool. And uh, he had a discrepancy with a gentleman that had a business and, and did a bad paint job. So he was going to just boycott, and we wasn't going to do nothing with the auto parts and the, and the body shop and all this stuff. You know, we're talking small communities around here in the area. Mm-hmm. And one day he found out that I went in there and bought some auto parts or something. And he threw a fit. And I said, why? And he goes, because I told them that I wouldn't grace their door again. And I told him, I said, Dad, I didn't tell them that. <laughs> you, know, right. I, you know, I don't care what your argument is. And he just could not understand the fact that he boycotted that place and that I went and did business with him, you know? Right. And, uh, and that's the, but that's the old school way he was is, you know, I'm the head of the family. And if I shut you off, my whole family shut you off. And, right. and I just, did, I didn't live that way. You know, I kind of marched my own thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that caused its own, its own riffs. But I tell you what, I think I'm a lot better off for carving my own path too. And, uh, and I think that's something that, that story I'm talking about is probably not nothing that any young man don't have to go through when they make those decisions in life. It's what you do with the rest of your life, you know? Right. Well, let's back up a little bit. But what year, so this is what, like 1990 when you got on deck? 
89. I, I literally gra- I graduated high school May 26th. Uh, got hired uh, or was called to interview June 3rd. Somewhere in the next week, I got on a boat. I'd have to go back and look at what my official hiring date is sometime in early to mid-June. And uh, uh, got on the boat, got on the Steel Pioneer right outside of Paducah. I, 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 I was with Ingram Barge Company, and I'm still with Ingram. Uh, what was the, I did that. What was the onboarding process in mid-1989? Uh, much the same as it is now. Uh, maybe not as refined. Um, we had a training program. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like I said, I entered, I, I, they called me June the 3rd. I remember that. Sometime in the wrong there, I went in and sat down for a formal interview, and then I had to go down to Nashville and take a, a pretty stringent physical down there at, uh, at Vanderbilt. And, of course, then I had to wait for the class to start, and they had back then on one or two a month where, you know, everybody comes in, and they, they go over all the safety systems, and they, they you know, make sure you can physically carry the rigging and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, very similar to what it is today. Now, I mean, it might be refined a little bit because, you know, your focus always changes for, for what's in the need at the time. Right. But it, it wasn't much different. I mean, it was a Monday through Friday orientation. And then when you're done, they send you out on a boat. And uh, uh, I can't remember if it was – we have changed uh, – I don't know if it was three days or five days. You know, I, it, but it was, you know, basically a week of, mm-hmm. of down there and them, uh, them showing you what the lifestyle is like. We, we lived on a boat right there at the dock. Uh, you know, I lived on the uh, old Steel Challenger, which is now the Joe B. White, if anybody's seen that boat around. And, uh, we, we, you know, they were in for overhaul and I stepped, uh, slept there. And uh, uh, it's very similar. I, ain't gonna, I mean, there is some differences, but not, not as much as what, uh, you know, people always want to talk about the good old days. And, you know, really, if you really think about it, the good old days ain't that much different from the nowadays. Right. <laughs> people do the same things, but it's it, very similar. I, I, you know, what, what was taught, the way, the way it was taught, the conditions it was taught was, was different. Uh, the, 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 what, what was put on emphasis, very similar. Even back then, it was always about safety and about proper technique. Sure. You know, they thought you had a lift and everything. Uh, you know, that ain't as new as people think it is. Um, I think there's a lot more focus on it now, but um, there was always focus on it even then. So in 89, when I started in, um, those programs were just getting started, and now we're into a, what, a 30-year evolution of those programs. Right. Now, what uh, when you first started, when you got on your first boat, uh, was that fleet or line haul? Line haul. Line haul was only uh, Robert. Uh, what, what is now the Robert C. Loading. Back then, it was the old Steel Pioneer. It was a boat that Ingram had acquired from uh, from Ohio Barge Line. Um, a forty two hundred horsepower, uh, one hundred sixty eight foot long. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, generally move fifteen barges on the Ohio, and then later on the Tennessee River. We got involved in that. Uh, we did take it up on the Illinois River one time. Uh, right after, right after I hired in here, we went up and and took it on the Illinois River for one summer. What was your, your first trip ever? Where was my first trip? I got on the boat in Paducah. Uh, we went down to Great Rivers, uh, Columbus, Kentucky, our, our big fleet there, uh, which is where it's still at today. Uh, came back up, returned on the mid-Ohio, went back south and turned for the upper, went up the Illinois River, came back down, and that's when they were building the new lock there at St. Louis, and I got off Lake Lock Bay right here. Okay. And what was the hitch back then? Uh, 30, 30. 
Now yeah. we do tw- now we do twenty eight and twenty eight, where we all crew change on the same day of the week. Right. Uh, back then it was a little different. I tell you that was, uh, and, and and I know all companies did things different, but back then you know it was before the age of cell phones. And so what we tried to do is catch the boat when it's going to be at a hub or a fleet. Right. You know, so you might crew change on day twenty nine. You might crew change on day thirty one. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of, but it was roughly around, you know, what, what we call a 30, 30 schedule, but you know, you, you left the office to coordinate your arrival or try to coordinate your arrival. If not, you know, we did crew changes out in the open, but you know, that was with a Marine radio in the, in the, in the, it was hitting a moving target and mm-hmm. you'd have a Marine radio on the van and you're chasing the boat up and down the river, or basically you just go to a town that you know is in front of the boat and just sit there all afternoon and wait for the boat to show up, you know? Right. So, um, um, yeah, it was 30, 30. Okay, and then take me through uh, as detailed as, as as detailed as you want your uh, your journey from deck to wheelhouse. Oh boy, that was colorful. Um, <laughs> I started, like I said, on that steel pioneer, and uh, we went a little bit here and yonder, but generally that boat was assigned up there in that upper Ohio trade, which was the old OBL trade, and. Uh, uh, we ran up and down the Ohio, but we stayed a lot up there, you know, turning out of DeVosburg and off between DeVosburg and Catlinsburg. So I spent much of my early career as a deckhand on the upper Ohio. I mean, and I, and I tripped a lot. Uh, you know, back then, I think, don't quote me on any of the numbers, but I think I hired in at $61 a day and they split that in half or $63 a day and they split it in half. It was either, it was either I hired in at 61 and they split it or they hired in at 63 and they split it. And it was 31. But, um, so, you know, having a young uh, wife living on my own being 19 years old or, or I started with, I was 18 and I, I met my wife about a year later. Uh, so broken hungry, you rode over a lot. And so I rode everywhere, but I was mainly assigned to that upper Ohio vision. Mm-hmm. And, um, I went from the pioneer. Um, well, I stayed on there until I jumped boat and, you know, Ingram was growing back in, uh, the company I worked for. And we hired a lot. And so if you if you hung around, made a good hand, you moved up quick. And the captain I was working for was a real good guy. And I was just getting to where he was trusting me to back then we had one radio on the boat and the man in charge and the radio. And I was just getting to the point where when there wasn't a, a lead man on or something, you know, he would let me take the radio out. And and so I was getting about that point. And this was I'd been there just a little over a year, and uh, me and my wife, I'd, I'd met my wife, I'd met Judy somewhere along the way, and there was some stuff going on at home, personal issues, <clears throat> and it just weighed on my mind, and it was August, and it was hot, and it was miserable, and the second mate or lead man or whoever he was on the boat had got sick, so... The captain would give me the radio, and I was out there trying to build tow. And uh, basically, you know, I, the captain just told me, he said, you put that radio mic right there on your shoulder and do what I tell you, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very, it was very frustrating. I was very hot, very tired, very miserable. I'd been up a long time. I went from call watch over to trying to run this watch. So here I am trying to build tow. And I had all this other stuff going on. And the mistake we made was we pulled into Catlinsburg Boat Store to get fuel. And I got on the phone and was talking to my wife. And I went back to the boat 
And I, the first barge they were bringing us after I went back, we went back out in the fleet. I, I called up the captain and I said, hey, Mark B, maybe, whatever it was. I said, when that tug comes back, I said, don't let him leave without me. And we got that last barge put in. And I went back. I threw everything I had, that big green duffel bag, hopped on the tug. Captain tried his best to talk me out of it. And I went back to the boat store. <clears throat> I didn't have any cash. Uh, I don't know, maybe a few dollars. And uh, <laughs> decided I was going to go home. Mm-hmm. Well, I called my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife now. And uh, I told her what I'd done. I figured she'd be ecstatic and happy. We just got off the phone for like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it was, you know, telling each other how much we missed and loved each other. And I remember the phone just went quiet. <laughs> and she said, you did what? <laughs> and I said, I just quit. I'm coming home. And she said, where are you at? And I told her, she goes, how are you going to get home? I said, I don't know, but I'm coming home. So you know, this, is, this is like 2 o'clock in the morning by now. And so I, I, I called the house, and my mom answered. And I told her what I was doing. And next thing I know, my dad pulled the phone out of her hand, and he told her, he said, what the hell did you just do? And I said, I quit. And he said, why? And I told him. And he said, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, that's it. He said, I, need, I said, I need somebody to come and get me. He said, you're nuts. And uh, I, I said, well, I need to get home. And he said, well, he, he said, son, he said, you're man enough to get out there and ride that boat. He said, you're man enough to make that decision. He said, you're man enough to get home. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so finally, after all night long of crying and whining, I convinced my mother to get up that morning, drive down to Western Union and wire a bus ticket to Ashland, Kentucky, but still didn't figure out how I was going to get from Catlisburg to Ashland. Mm-hmm. So I took off hitchhiking and I got down into the boat or the bus. Uh, and that was something interesting. I told them I wanted the first bus out of town. Well, let me tell you, when they try to convince you that you don't always want the first bus out of town, uh, don't take the first bus. <laughs> Because there is a bus that runs straight down the West Kentucky Parkway, you know, to, to Princeton or Paducah area. But no, I took the first bus. And dude, I was everywhere. Yeah. I I was in between I, I went from I went from Kentucky to West Virginia, up into Ohio, down back and forth into Kentucky, bounced back and forth from Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana. I, I went within twenty miles of the house on the way by to make a big long circle and come back. Uh, almost 24 hours later, I arrived in Paducah and my dad picked me up in the truck. And, you know, by the time I had a lot of time to think on that way home. Yep. And, and that was not a pleasant car ride home. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, my dad asked me, where do I want, where did I want to go? And let me just say it wasn't back to his house. Right. So I went up to, I went up to my, 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 my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and I showed up at her house. And so now I'm not only without a job, I'm without a place to live. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, uh, I bummed around here doing a few things until we decided to go uh, back because I realized all them guys on the boat, even to this day, well, I can leave this boat and I can go make a living at McDonald's better. No, you can't. I tried it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I was working a whole lot harder, making a whole lot less. Mm-hmm. And so in the process of all that, me and my wife bumped our date up that we decided to get married. So we just wouldn't do it. And we did, which was another big mistake because it got even harder to make it when you got somebody depending on you. Right. And so me and her scratched it out of living and we were we were living in this house that was my grandparents and we literally had went in and got cardboard boxes and duct tape and taped up the boxes to make end tables and coffee tables. We took, she had like $18, I think it was, or $30 in the bank. It was 50, she said. 
she's there beside me. <laughs> and it's fifty dollars. And we went to a yard sale and bought a hide couch. And we drug it home. And when we dropped it, the, when we dropped it off the back of the truck, and the yard cockroaches ran out of it. Hmm. So we literally threw plastic over it, threw a bomb in it, and tried to kill all the roaches and brought it to the house. So we had a hide couch, a bunch of cardboard boxes, and a portable TV that her sister gave us to sit on top of my wife's stereo. Hmm. And we were we were married. <laughs> we set up house. Uh, we were starving to death. And we made up our mind to go back on the river. It wasn't, it wasn't, this all happened pretty quick. It wasn't a long time. It wasn't like years later. This was months later. We decided to, 10 months, she said. And let me tell you, that was a rough 10 months to be 19 years old and decide to get married in. Yeah. And and uh, so we went back on the river and life got good. Uh, I could work as much as I wanted. Uh, you know, one of the benefits back then, because we were young, when I'd go on the boat, my wife would just shut the house up and she'd go back to her parents. Mm -hmm. And I'd go work as long as I could. And so I worked in that, back to the story, I worked up in that upper Ohio trade. Uh, when I hired back in, uh, they put me back in that trade up there. And I think they put me on the old uh, steel forwarder, which was the Chip Lacey. Um, I rode that for just a couple of trips. Then I ended up on the Steel Express, and uh, uh, that's the that was the James Anderson before we sold it to uh, uh, Amherst Madison. Um, my uh, mate that I worked with is Mike White, who's still here today. Matter of fact, me and him were just together this, this week, and uh, uh, stayed there. And me and the captain had a little dispute, so I got off there and went to the Martha Denton, and that right there was where I really really settled into my life on the river mm -hmm. that that was one of those that everybody that's ever worked on the river that's listening to this will know you know you've got good trips and bad trips and and uh for various reasons you got people you click with and there's some crews you go and you don't feel as welcome and some crews you go you just don't feel as connected but every once in a while every now and again and i've had it happen a couple of times in, in my career you get that crew that just clicks Mm -hmm. And that was my first, I mean, I, I had a, the, the first captain I ever worked with, Captain Les Grimm. Uh, he's got a boat runs around down in your area down mm -hmm. there. The mm -hmm. after him. Um, he was probably one of the most influential people in my career. <clears throat> and, and he was the guy I jumped boat with. And he's also the guy that when I came back to the river, Donald Purdy called and he said, you know, give him another chance. And uh, I met a lot of good people that I'll never forget. But I got on that little Martha Denton. And that crew that we had, I, I, I'm, I'm not even going to now, nowadays, I'm not even going to tell you some of the stories about my, my couple of years on that boat. All right. But <clears throat> we had a blast and we just all fit. Uh, we, we stayed together for, I, well, it, it was until I, uh, you know, started moving up that I had to move on. Uh, but we worked up there turning out of the Roseburg through the Pittsburgh end through the four double locks and it was a little 2800 horsepower boat we turned the big boats like i said it was just it was just one of those moments in in, in your career as a river man as a tow boater where that crew just just got it and and and, and we, we, we stayed together to the point that we stayed together too long and we were all ready to move on yeah and so when we kind of busted up we all busted up at once and all moved on to bigger better things the captain went to a bigger boat and you know the mate went to a bigger boat and the the lead man became a mate and 
and I became a lead man. And uh, uh, so, you know, after that, I went and I became a lead man. I started working at that point more down here on the, by this time Ingram was big into the Tennessee River trade. I started working more down here closer to home on the Tennessee River. Uh, pulled trips everywhere. I, like I said, I've been, you know, I, I, I on my days off, I'd work over and I've, I've rode everywhere. Uh, I guess any place the water's wet. I've been to Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, one time we took one of the little boats over and I, I went over to uh, Pensacola, Florida, taking some rock over there. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and that was the good thing about tripping. When, when, when you're a deckhand like that, that even works to this day. When you trip and fill in, you're going to go everywhere because you're, you know, especially they, 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 they and everybody in the, in the industry listening knows what I'm talking about. You got this little one-off run someplace that, you know, uh, you don't, you don't really have something for it. So you just take this boat over here and you crew it up real quick and you go do the run. And I was always right here within 30 mile of the office. So, and, and I, I like to work. So the crew dispatcher knew that. So I got a lot of those little kind of one-off gigs where, you know, <clears throat> hop in the, hop in the truck, drive down here, get on this boat and go do this. So that was kind of fun. Um, that went along and trying to think about trying to put the timeline together, Tim. It wasn't long. I guess 92 or so, 93. It happened real quick about this time. I got in the wheelhouse in 95. <clears throat> so I'm going to say it was sometime in 93, late 93, that I, I made lead then. Mm-hmm. Well, then that made second mate. And then I had a captain that rode with me that just, I guess, thought I did a great job and put me in for a mate's job. And that happened. And at the same time, I had another captain that was pushing me to get my license. So all of this kind of happened within just a few months. And so I went and got my license while I was, you know, right, right about this. Just, it wasn't long after I made mate. Somebody, and I, I don't, I'm not clear as to who or how, but somebody put my name in the hat. Now, now remember this, I was working on my days off. And by this point, we'll back up just a little bit. I was working on my days off by this point and in the interim. And I was working down here for the overhauls, but my neighbor was one of the port engineers and he wanted me to go in the engine room. So he'd stop and pick me up and take me to work every day. Mm-hmm. And so I'd work 12 hours down there in Paducah, uh, overhauling, uh, repowering, you know, just, being a deckhand, helping the engineers. And they came to me and, and approached me about getting in the juniors program and said that this fall they were going to pick some guys. They were going to pick three guys. They wanted to know if I said yes. And they said, okay. And 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 uh, that's what my neighbor told me that, that that's what he was going to sponsor me. That's what we we're going to do. Okay. Well, I was down there working on They pulled me off where I wasn't going out and riding the boats anymore. I was just working there. They had a big repower going on. Uh, with a boat and I was working on that well they came down one day and the crew dispatcher came down and they had a mate for one of those orientations we were talking about uh, deck, the deck classes uh, for the new hires that hadn't showed up and Dan Brock had needed somebody to come up and fill in help so he came down and asked if I'd go up and help well I did I was right there at the dock so I just went up there and uh, I was sitting out on the uh, porch there and our port captain at the time came out, sat there beside me, and uh, they were all the all the uh, trainees were in there watching videos, safety videos and stuff. And I was sitting outside on the steps, and he sat there beside me and asked me. He said, uh, "What I was doing?" I told him. I told him I was down there working, you know, on overalls. And he said, "What are you down there doing that for?" And 
he remembered me because we had been involved with, there was an incident in a lock um, a little bit before that. And I was one of the guys that was up there on that little Martha Denton trying to salvage the barges off the lock and stuff. And it was a pretty big deal. And and he remembered me and my crew from that, you know, and got to know us because he slept there on the, he, he lived with us for like a week. And, you know, so it was one of those things that was somebody you meet along your career that you made an impression in on how you worked that, you know, it, it, it rung a bell with him and, uh, and impressed him. Well, when I told him I was going to the engine room, he asked me, so why aren't you going to the wheelhouse? And I told him, I said, well, I don't know anybody. You know, I don't have any. Uh, and back then, it wasn't as easy getting a wheelhouse as now. There wasn't as many being made. And uh, this was in the early 90s. And he said, oh, no, no, it ain't that way. And we talked back and forth. And he said, well, I see what you mean. And I said, look, I got to spend money to get those licenses. I got to go down there and do it. And I said, I don't, I don't have any help. And, and I said, here, I said, you know, my neighbor, he, he's a port engineer. He's willing to help me. You know, I'm going to go for it. And he told me, he put his hand on my shoulder and he got up. And I never will forget. He said, just remember, he said, if you get them licenses. And he said, uh, they can't ever take away from you, no matter what position you hold. Right. And, and he said, I think you ought to get it. He said, I'll tell you what you do. He said, you go get them license. And he said, you show me how bad you want to it, want it. And he said, I'll see it to it. You get everything you deserve. Mm-hmm. So I came home and I was talking to my father and dad said, well, son, he said, I never put you through college. He said, why don't you take, he said, how much would it take? And I said, I don't know. I would do the math. Cause a couple thousand dollars, you know, go down and spend a week or whatever. And uh, so dad went in, uh, went in his bedroom, came out and laid the money on the table. Well, at first I didn't take it. We left there. My, my dad's brother came up, stopped by the house and said, why didn't you do that? And I told him, I said, well, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be beholden to him. He said, look, he wants to do it. He said, do it. So I, I went down and I told dad, so I got the money and I came up and uh, this was a Tuesday. Now, see, this, this is how fast everything happens. And this is how those coincidences and fates all line up, Jim. Sure. I called a buddy of mine, the, the mate that I worked with all the time when that Martha did, and I tell you about that real good crew. Mm-hmm. I called him, I called him up and uh, I knew he was off the boat. I asked him, I said, Dennis, I said, do you still have that packet? for that river school down in Memphis when you were going to get your license. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I said, are you going to use it? And he said, not right now. And I said, can I have it? And he said, yeah, sure. So I he went and got it. I called the river school and I called Miss Betty down there. And I told her, and she goes, well, too bad you ain't got everything filled out. She said, I got a cancellation on Thursday. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. So I, I came back home real quick uh, start filling everything out. And I stopped, uh, I stopped by the office <clears throat> and I asked, uh, Steven about it. And he said, well, we'll see if we can't get everything together by, by tomorrow. I said, okay. So they start putting everything together. Well, I, I come home by the time it's too late. So I get up the next day and I make, uh, I make, finish my phone calls up, get everything trying to set up and I need a physical. So I call the local doctor up here in town, just a little, you know, not like a big, big hospital, just a little doctor. And asked him if he could give me this physical. And he said, yeah, stop by about 4 o'clock. Four o'clock, oh, God, okay. So then I go down to the office, and they're trying to get my paperwork together. <clears throat> and uh, they had to have three, I can't remember if it was signatures or letters or whatever. But anyway, so Steve, Dan, and Jerry uh, signed off on you know the letters and whatever for me to get my license. And I get all my paperwork together. I come back home. I go up there at 4 o'clock. I take a physical. And that night, I'm on the road to Memphis. Mm-hmm. I went down there and I went to class Thursday, Friday, realized I didn't have a CPR first aid, 
So Saturday I drive around and I finally find a Red Cross Center in West Memphis, Arkansas that'll give a first aid CPR class on Saturday. Uh, I'm not going to tell you all about Saturday night, but I relieved my stress Saturday night in downtown Memphis. Um, Kate came in Monday and I started testing on Monday afternoon and Monday, Tuesday. I had all my tests in and I got my uh, uh, operators of a towing vessel on the Western Rivers and uh, and my master's base license Monday and Tuesday and came home. So I, I literally sat in class Thursday, Friday, and then Monday, Tuesday, came home Tuesday night. I went down Wednesday morning and I threw my license on a, on my port captain's desk. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he goes, I, 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 I can't do nothing right now. <laughs> you know? And I mean, this was like just a few days after we talked, you know? So finally I, 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 I basically convinced him. I said, we, we just brought back, uh, we'd started our fleet there in Paducah and we'd brought a boat down from the Gulf up here that didn't really have much of a crew. And he told me, he said, you go down there. And he said, you talk to that captain. He said, and, uh, you ask that captain if he'll teach you. And he said, uh, you go get on that boat. And he said, you don't get off until you're a pilot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, okay. And so I went down there. He said, they need a mate. So I went down there. When I got down there, I got talking to the mate who was from down South, uh, Mobile, I think. And, uh, or Texas. And he said, man, he said, I'm, he said, this is perfect. He said, I'm going through a divorce. And he said, I need to be home. He said, I got to make these court dates and all this stuff. And, uh, he said, if you'll just cover for me, he said, I'll, I'll let you. So we all worked it out. So I'm down there staring every chance I get. And then when my day's up, when my day's off come up, I don't get off the boat. Right. I just, I just sleep in the floor. And, and back then there wasn't a problem with that. I, I didn't get paid, but I mean, I, I stayed on the boat and I slept in the floor in the captain's room and I, and I steered. And I got my license July 27th. I got on that boat. I think it was the 29th. September 16th, they called and told me to get off the boat. I thought, well, crap, that's done. <laughs> you know, okay, that's over. And I wasn't a pilot. I mean, I had, I had just, I mean, however much time you can squeeze in steering like this, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I get home, I think, I think it was the 16th, 15th or 16th. Um, <clears throat> next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call. They're, they're getting no cell phones, you know, this was, this was 1995. And uh, I get a phone call and a man says, uh, I, I, I need a, this was from another company of ours. Um, back then we had different companies within. And, and he said, I, I need a pilot. I said, you called the wrong number. <laughs> and uh, he said, he said, no, he said, I heard you've been doing some steering. You're doing good. He said, I need a pilot. And I'm like, oh, no. He said, I said, when do you need me? And he said, Monday. And this is like Friday. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I, I'm not going to work for somebody I ain't ever met. And I said, I got long hair. And I said, you just might not like the way I look. And so here I am, 24 years old, just got my license. Virtually no, what you call steering time. Um, and so I, we could, he talk, we talk about it. And he convinces me. I, I go down on, on, on Monday and I go to Nashville and I sit and talk to him. And he convinced me to give it a try. So I drive back up on Tuesday. I'm on a tug. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was always a line boat guy. The only tug experience I had was those that from the time I got my license to the time this happened. So late, I was going to say the 1st of August to the 1st of September. Well, it was one quiet experience. I got on there and uh, they, they gave me, they worked one pilot and one deck on each ship. And all you had to do was put one load from the fleet or from the dredge to the fleet and one empty from the fleet to the dredge. Mm-hmm. And 
when I got on the boat, they gave me a deck in, but the only experience he had on the water was he was the son of one of the men that worked on the dredge. And that summer when he got out of high school, they hired him to paint the dredge hmm. and they put him on the boat. And so it was me who had no experience driving a boat hardly and him who had no experience decking. Right. And I didn't even know how to slide a barge. I mean, I knew basically how to drive. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like just, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm just not blind running around out there. I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd had enough to know how to steer the boat, but you know, how to walk the boat efficiently to spot the anchors, all that. I had to learn that on the fly. Right. And the guy, the guys on the dredge taught me a lot. You know, they sat up there and watched these boats. Forever, so they, they kind of knew what was going on. And then I learned when I went there, they had uh, cell phones in the wheelhouse, the old big bag phones, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, cell phones weren't reportable then, but they were a new technology. <clears throat> well, I guarantee you, Ingram might not have paid for my education with the steersman program, but they paid for my education through phone bills <laughs> because I called everybody. <clears throat> and I learned real quick how to learn without being shown. I learned real quick how to learn by listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd call, you know, hey, and this was all the way through my, my career. I'd call and say, hey, uh, I, I'm, I'm here and I got, I, I don't want me to take this many barges and the river's doing this and the water's doing this. Can I do it? Well, the boat can. Okay, that's good enough. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, hey, I'm going here. How do I do And I And I learned which I think is a, a, a very good way to learn. I, I, I take nothing away from the steers and programs that we have today. They're, they're, they're far, far superior in, a lot, in any way to what I'm talking about learning. And you find a lot of guys back, I hate to say it back in the day, but that learned like I'm learning. I wasn't that um, But I was on that dredge and I had one, you know, one empty on and one load off. Um, a lot of learning there. A lot of learning. Cause you learn yourself and, and you learn from messing up and you, you learn, the hard way, you know, and, and it was rough and it was stressful, but then they moved you from the dredge. I went to Nashville and I worked up there. Same thing. One load from the fleet to the dock and one empty from the dock to the fleet. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they, they bring two or three sometimes. So I got to handle two or three. And there's a, there's a couple of narrow bridges up there where we used to have our, our sand yard. And then on that boat at night, a lot of times you wouldn't do anything. You'd take six or nine barges out and you'd go down below Nashville and turn one of the bigger line boats, split their toes up, bring them in. And then we ran up to a little place a few miles away with sand barges to take to their dock up there, up, up above Nashville. So I got a little bit of, of up and down the river under my belt. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I came back down to Paducah Fleet. And I worked in Paducah Fleet. It was a little faster pace. And, and I made an impression on a captain there that wanted me to come over and work with him on what we called then the overage boat. And that was back when we ran a lot of uh, bigger tows for TVA up the Tennessee River. So we'd run 25 out of there. Well, somebody had to take the other 10 and take them up through the lot. So here I am on this, on this thousand horsepower boat, uh, the C.A. Johnson, and I'm taking, uh, you know, these toes, these over toes up the Tennessee River and up through Kentucky Lock. So that gave me my locking experience. So it was just incremental baby steps all the way up. Right. And then we'd run up to the quarries. Well, you get up there and you bring out what you can. Well, so you bring out four or six barges. Well, next time you go up there, you feel a little braver. You want to you want to go from four to six. Well, next time you want to go from six to, to nine. And, and you know, and so you experiment all the way and you gain your confidence. And that's just the way my career went all the way after that. You know, I went from the fleets there. I got on the biggest boat of the fleet we had. 
and I made, uh, you know, I was on, by that time I was on, on front watch. And then I went to the 1800s and I ran up in above Nashville up there in that little trade. Well, there again, when we wasn't running our six packs back and forth to Nashville, up above Nashville, we'd grab a, you know, a nine or a 12 barge tow and run down to Cheatham Lock and turn a boat down there. Mm-hmm. And that give you a little, stretch your legs a little more. Um, and then you'd have to come out maybe get the boat worked on. So you'd grab nine or on a good weather, 12 barges and come down to Paducah. So that gave you a little more line boating. Well, then they moved, they moved me up to a 4200 uh, running the coal trade on uh, to Cumberland City. Mm-hmm. Uh, short round, short run, little retractable boat that nobody wanted to work on. <laughs> so guess what? The new guy gets that, right? right. And <clears throat> we worked ourselves up where we were doing 20. And, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, 25 on that run. And uh, then we moved over to Tennessee River and you do 25 or 30 over there. Well, then you get a little braver. And, you know, at one time, a couple of times I did 35. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just stair stepped up, you know, and it got up to where I, I never left the Ohio. I was offered to, I was offered to go to the Mississippi River. Um, I thought about it and I turned them down on both accounts, both the upper and the lower. I was in my mid 30s and I was just comfortable where I was at. I really enjoyed what I was doing. I never felt the need to have to, when I was, when I was in my twenties, it was kind of funny. There's one of those twists of life. With him. When I was in my mid twenties, I was begging to go to Mississippi River. And when to go on the lower. And my goal was always to take 30 through Baton Rouge Bridge by the time I was 30. Okay. Well, I, I turned 30 and I hadn't made it. I was still on the Ohio, Tennessee, Cumberland River. And by this time, they'd moved me on the Ohio. And they'd called me and uh, we'd expanded again. And uh, they'd asked me if I wanted to go on the, on the upper or the lower. And they were really trying to encourage me to go to the lower. And at first, I almost accepted. And what well, I did accept, and then I got thinking about it, and I just didn't have that desire anymore. Uh, I was liking what I was doing. Matter of fact, I kept trying to get off the Ohio back onto the Cumberland uh, River. And my, my favorite river is always the Cumberland River, and still is. It's a small river. You run full size toes. Uh, it, it's just fun. It's, it's right here close to home. I know it well. You know, and I, and I got to the point, I guess, in my career where I get into my comfort zone and I like doing what I was doing. Uh, I, was, I, I ran the Ohio River a lot, was never a fan of the Ohio River. Uh, ran the Tennessee River some. It's all right. Um, but my favorite river to run was always that little Cumberland River. I liked it to this day. You know, that's where I liked it. So I spent my whole career pretty well in the Tennessee Valley. Um, probably should have expanded and kept kept expanding. It's never a good thing to get too comfortable or complacent in what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the smaller rivers. I enjoyed the smaller boats. And uh, that's where I stayed pretty well my whole career until I came shoreside. Where did, uh, along the way, did the turbo nickname come from? That first boat at the dredge. Okay. Um, it came from uh, really annoying a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, I'm 24 years old, wide open. This last six, eight months, if you remember, was just a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Um, how it all just evolved and erupted into what it was. You know, I was, I just... I was a second mate that was just trying to make mate. I just made mate, was working all I could in the engine room, thinking I was going to go that path. Had been, they talked to me about going in the engine room. I was setting my sights that way. My life gets whirled around when somebody asked me to go get my pilot's license. I did. I don't know who made the suggestion for that man to call me. I've, I've accredited a couple of people, but I really couldn't say who done it. But the man called me. I took the chance. I, I got in the wheelhouse. 
Well, I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I'm just excited. You could imagine that kind of a whirlwind at 24 years old. And now they give you a boat to play with. But right. I was always from the big boats. I was always from the big boats. And this is where the story comes in about my name. I'd sit up there, and man, every time I'd hear one of them big boats kick out of the fleet and go by, if you've ever been close to one, you know what I'm talking about. You hear that whistle when those turbos mm-hmm. come up. Mm-hmm. And I just always tell them, you know, I, I, I always, wrongfully so, now that I've went through the full cycle and have drove just about, you know, a lot of stuff, I can tell you that there's probably nobody got a harder job than a harbor pilot. Yeah. Uh, and the things they can do with those boats. And, you know, the size toes I've taken with those little boats, I wouldn't do it again today. Um, but I wasn't happy there. I wasn't a little boat guy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted all those big boats so bad. And I'd always talk about them. And, and one guy made the comment there at the dredge to one of the other boats. Well, I don't know, but I wish he'd quit talking about those. Uh, he said about those damn turbos. He said, if I hear about those one more time, and one of them said, hell, turbo charge, he got turbo charge chops. Yeah. And so uh, uh, it kind of stuck. They started joking with me about uh, turbo charge chops. You know, I talked real fast. I talked real, I talked a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was always talking about the same thing, which is getting out of these little boats, getting on the big boat. Right. <clears throat> and so uh, over the time, it stuck. And then it just got dropped down to turbo and to the point to where after probably a year or two, that was just a given. Nobody even remember where it came from. Um, it's like any other nickname. You know, it usually starts out of an exaggerated uh, um, uh, character behavior sure. and, and sticks. And uh, within a few years, my mail was even coming to the house turbo. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if, if my mail comes from work, most of the time it has turbo on it. Yeah. Uh, when I came shoreside, they put me down as Mike Hughes and they had to go in and figure out a way to put a, another name in there and, and put it as turbo because everybody was complaining. Nobody knew how to send me an email because nobody knew my name. Right. They type in, they type in turbo and nothing would come in the email. Yeah. Who the hell is Mike Hughes? Right. Yeah. No, no, I am not identifiable. If I want any kind of anonymity in an industry function or something, then I put Mike Hughes on my name tag. Sure. If I want everybody to know me, I put turbo. Sure. Well, when along the way did you meet your wife? Tell me that story. Oh, um, it was that first year on the river. So I went to work on the river in June. <clears throat> and uh, I had a little time adjusting to that. Uh, it's weird. And I think there's probably a lot of people that work on the river that will resonate with this one. Uh, here I am, 18 years old, and everything everything when you're a kid in your high school is your social circle, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I come from a small community. There's nothing here. So everybody that went to work or they went to college or they moved away and went to work. So the few of us that were left all had jobs. Most of them, you know, uh, most of them moved away for a job, bigger cities and towns. Um, a lot of them were on the job in the rock quarries, uh, sawmills, some of them on the towboats, a lot of them on towboats. So I came home and there was nothing to do. So at that time I, I decided I wanted to, I, there was a truck I always wanted, and I decided to build it, and I went out and found me one. And a buddy of my father's uh, that worked with him 
at, at the prison was a, was, a, was a body man by trade. And so he did body work out of his house. Dad talked to Jim. And, and so I took the old truck up there. And we stripped it off, took the cab and the bed off, stripped it under its frame. And I completely re restored the frame and started restoring the truck. And I'm doing this on my days off, my 30 days off. <clears throat> and I did that all summer there, that, that first summer. And because uh, my dad was trying to discourage me from taking a car payment, I went and looked at an 89, brand new 89 Mustang GT. Hmm. And I was really enjoying that. And I thought, man, I, thought, I was figuring it up. I can afford it. And then due to my colorful driving history as a teenager, my insurance is going to be $11 a month more than my car payment. So <laughs> <laughs> that nicks the... That nicks the hot rod out of my equation, so I decided I'd build me one. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, so I, I was building this 67 Ford pickup into a street rod. I love that body style. I still do. And I found a, I found a good one, and uh, old farmer had it. Remember back then, these cars weren't, you know, 20 years old. Right. And uh, uh, so I got it up there, and we're working on it. And down the, just right beside that guy that was helping me restore a car was this high school kid. And he'd get off the bus every day and he'd go climb on. He'd ride his three-wheeler back and forth. And uh, he got to coming over there and we got talking. And he was three years younger than me. He was like a sophomore in high school. But you got to remember, I'm just when, I'm just a few months out of high school. So wasn't that much of an age difference. And uh, uh, he hadn't even had his driver's license yet. Well, in the process, he helped me build this truck. and We'd hang out together. And, you know, he still hung out with the kids, right? He's still hung out with the high school kids. So, you know, I'm the guy first year out of high school first summer and i'm still hanging out with high school kids and it was the one town up the road up here about 15 mile away and they had this little pool hall arcade pizza video rental place that all the kids hung out in at night so i'd go hang out there he kept telling me about this aunt and uh <clears throat> so he, no 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 you gotta and uh judy had been in albuquerque after she got out of school with her brother, and she was thinking about moving out west. She's got a big family, seven brothers and sisters, and she's the baby of the bunch. And she'd been out there living with her brother and his wife, and she thought she might want to stay out there. So he told me, he said, this was like November now, and uh, Jeff had told me, he said, he said, Mike, he said, she's coming in for Thanksgiving. He said, uh, uh, you need to meet her. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I do not want to meet this girl. Yeah. And so we're there one evening. We're playing pool. My truck's just about done. <clears throat> and uh, I'm driving it. It ain't completely finished, but I'm driving it, putting the interior in it. And this little old blonde girl walks in. And she's five foot two, 90 pounds, and, and, and just a beautiful face. Um, and, and, and it's uh, uh, I, I, I still look back, you know, she was, she was definitely, you know, above my, above my pay grade. So <laughs> and, uh, I looked over at her and I seen her and Jeff was overdoing what he was doing or whatever. And I, I whistled at him and I threw my pool stick down and all she did was walk through the door, picked up a movie and a pizza and walked back out. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, what's up? What's up? And I come on, we're going. He said, where are we going? And I said, I don't know who that is, but I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And he started laughing and he said, okay, okay. So we get in the truck and we go, uh, follow her. And before she goes home, she stopped by the little, you know, how everybody used to back then, before, before, uh, modern social media, you know, everybody hung out on the street corner someplace. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so there was a little area up there by the car wash in that little town where, where all the kids, especially all the hot rodders 
you know, hung out with their cars and, you know, there's somebody to get a drag race going for the night and all that kind of stuff. And they'd sit around the hood of the cars. It was kind of in a dark gravel parking lot behind everything, you know, off the side. And all there would always be somebody there sneaking beer out of the bed of the truck, you know, and watching for the town marshal drive by, you know, small town stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, she she parks there to talk to one of her friends. Well, I just, I asked Jeff, I said, you know these people? Jeff said, yeah, I know them all. Okay. So we pull in there. I said, you, you go talk to somebody. So we walk up there and I kind of in, inject myself into, into Judy's conversation with her friend and I, and I, and I vaguely knew the, the, the people she was talking to. And um, by her admittance, the first thought she had of me was I was the most annoying, arrogant <laughs> son of a bitch she'd ever met in her life. Yeah, good start. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway, she went home, and that's all I had on my mind. And as luck would have it, she'd had some trouble with uh, uh, an ex-boyfriend of hers kind of making a nuisance of himself. Uh, You know, small town, young kid drama. And her parents just didn't really like the fact of her going out. He was harassing her a lot. So her dad had told her, look, if you're going to go downtown and hang out with that bunch, you need to make sure you got Jeff or somebody with you, you know, because Jeff was her nephew. This guy I was hanging out with, by the way, was her nephew, her sister's oldest son. So now her sister's like, you know, like I said, my wife was the baby of seven, mm-hmm. but, but her next closest sibling was her brother who was eight years older. Hmm. So when she was born, her oldest brother was like 21 years old. Right. And so her sister, you know, she grew, my wife grew up as a, with a lot of her nieces and nephews as being the same age as her. Right. Close. Right. So that, that catches you up on why, you know, Jeff's involved and how that started sure. out. Sure. And so, so Jeff, uh, uh, you know, well, if me and Jeff were developing a real tight friendship, still are to this day. And, uh, you know, if he's got, if he's got a chaperone duty, well, hell, <laughs> that means me too, right? And so here she's stuck with this guy that she can't stand. <laughs> and the, the only way her dad's going to let her go out and hang out with her friends is if Jeff's with her. Well, at that time, me and Jeff were a package deal. Yeah. So uh, we just kind of created an attraction just of being together. And then, you know, of course, Jeff didn't want to chaperone his aunt. He never, he didn't understand why. You know, as an adult now, I look back and I understand Bob's concern, which is probably overprotective as a father. But, uh, you know, probably warranted some too. Mm-hmm. And so at, at the time, you know, I got closer and closer to Judy's family, especially her, her older sister, who was Jeff's mother. <clears throat> and so it got to be, she could go out not only if she went out with Jeff, but if she went out with Mike. Well, come to find out years down the road, the reason that was thrown in there was because Judy's older sister, Debbie, and her mother, Fell in love with me before she did. <laughs> so, so it's the reason always, that the, always good to start at the top. The, the the reason that her being chaperoned was extended so long, which by the way, just really, you know, drove her nuts, was because her sister and mother were behind the scenes conspiring on how they could get her to date me. Hmm. <clears throat> and it, 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 it all started one night. I was with her, and we went and sat. Behind the bank, across from that little a little pizza place, and we just sat there in, in the truck and talked. Mm-hmm. And it was just me and her. There wasn't nobody else around. And I was so frustrated at that point, I wasn't trying to impress her. And she seen a little bit different side of me. She got to actually see me just talk mm-hmm. and you know talk about 
you know, for kids, you know, remember, we're 19 years old, right? So we're not talking just them. Uh, we're, 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 we're not we're not on the road scholar level of communications anymore. we're not solving world problems you know we're 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 we're, we're still in the you know uh uh who, who's cheating on who at school type conversation right. you know and but but we we did we had you know we had one of those meaningful uh deep conversations and then we just started spending more and more time together and of course i'm going back and forth to the boat and uh we had never officially formally went out on a date and at one point there, I gave up on her. I actually told her sister, I said, I'm done. And I and I and I I just quit going up there. You know, I just I just quit. And I figured I, you know, I'm I'm almost 20 years old now. I mean, I'm not gonna uh I've been messing with this for almost a year or whatever, you know, or several months. I'm not gonna, you know, spend my life pining away over a over a girl, right? You know, so I'm gonna get out there. And her sister called me up one day and Judy had to go do something, had to get a dress or something for some event. And she told me, she said, do you still want to go out with her? And I said, yeah, I'd love to, Debbie, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I don't go, I'm not going to chase her. I'm, 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 I'm done with that. And she said, if you want to be with her, then you need to get your ass up here and told me what time. And I thought about it. So I showed up. Well, they had it all planned where everybody in the family that could have took Judy somewhere. Judy didn't have a car at that time. She had to use the family car or somebody's car. And, yeah, that's another thing from, quote, way back in the good old days was <laughs> you didn't always just get guaranteed a car at 16 years old. You know what I mean? And right. uh, uh, so uh, I go up there and get her, and I take her up there. We're spending that time together. And I just told her that I was done. I wasn't going to chase her. And I told her, I told her, I can't remember how the exact conversation went, but I, I told her something to the extent, you know, of course, there again, this is, this is young kid dramatics, right? You know, but I, I told her, I said, you know, I said, one of these days you're going to regret this because I said, one of these days you're going to fall for me. And when you do, you're going to fall hard. And basically the whole point of the story was I may or may not be here. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and so uh, uh, that right there is what triggered us actually starting to date. And uh, we had not, um, really been all that physical with each other before I asked her to marry me. It didn't take long. We'd been together for, I mean, this is like going on a, a year and in, and in teenage terms, this is like a lifetime. Right. And we're sitting there one night and goofing off and, you know, our, we never dated. I would just every day go pick her up and we'd go sit down in front of the river. And there again, that's where the river ties into my life. We, that little town was on the river and we'd go down to the park and we'd sit there and we'd hang out at that little arcade until it closed down, and we'd go up to the Phoenix store before it closed. And we'd load up on soda pops and snacks, and we'd go sit there, and we would sit in front of that river and watch the uh, moon rise and talk until the birds start chirping. And then I'd drop her off about dawn, and she'd get in trouble for being out all night, and I'd get in trouble for being out all night. That's actually what got me um, well on my way to being kicked out of the house when, when Oh, after I quit the boat, uh, that is what got me kicked out of the house. <laughs> yeah. My dad told me, he said, you, if you ain't going to listen to me, if you ain't going to follow my rules and be here when I tell you to be here, he said, you can just go on. So wow, I did. <clears throat> and that's a whole other story. But um, that's how we, you know, and we were just sitting there one night and we were talking, there was something funny that happened. I got off the boat and I came home. And uh, this was the trip before I quit. I came through town and everybody stopped me. I mean, you know, small town here, but I mean, I had just one after the other stopping me. Judy's cheating on you. I'm like, how's she cheating on me? We ain't dating. 
can't cheat on somebody you ain't dating. <laughs> and uh, they're like, oh, no, 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 she's cheating on you. She, she was with this guy. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, so I first thing I did, went, like I always do, I'd already talked to her. I went and picked her up. Right? And I said, well, I said, everybody, and I told her what happened. And she said, oh, my God. She said, I went out with him, you know. I went out with him one time. She said, we, we met down here. And she said, we, we hung out in town a couple of times. She said, no. She said, I am not, you know, I'm not dating that guy. And I said, well, that's fine. I don't care if you do. And uh, I said, I don't, I don't own you or nothing. We're, we're, we're talking like that. And uh, so through the night, we just kept laughing about how, you know, and, and she was like, and who told you? And I was telling her all the people. And I said, no, no, they literally flagged me over and pulled me over, you know, and, and she's like oh my god and we're just laughing about small town stuff and uh at one at one point there i told her i said you know i said if they all think that and, and now remember every day i picked her up we spent every day and every evening together and i told her i said you know we we ought to just give them something to talk about she said yeah and uh so we got talking about it and we decided we'd date and i, I actually more or less to wrap up a long story short, the way that uh, it all transpired was we were engaged to be married before we were really dating. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've, been, we've been together ever since. I mean, 30, uh, oh, shoot, who was it? We got married in October of 90. So that, that's how quick this all happened. You know, I mean, you had, uh, I went to work in, uh, in June of 89 on the boat. And I met her that Thanksgiving. And then, like the next May, all this went down. April and May, and then after all that went down, and we'd actually officially started dating, quote dating, quote engaged to be married. I went out on a boat in July, late June, July, and uh, that's when I jumped. That that's in that August is when I jumped boat and came home. Yeah. And uh, so I bummed around that fall, and the next spring went back. Um, on, on the boat, and, and, and it was funny because we got married in October of 90 and uh, struggled that first year. And the very next year, uh, that, that fall of the next year, is when my wife, she got really, really sick. She kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And she ended up in the hospital. They diagnosed her with chronic Crohn's disease, which she still has to this day. And she had her first surgery. So, just a little over a year after we got married, we were faced with a chronic life-threatening illness right. that's still been with us to this day. So, you know, 1990 to 22, so 32 years this October. Yeah. Um, waited 10 years to have a kid. Uh, nine years. Uh, so we didn't have a kid till we were 29. So made a pretty good run of it, and it's been rough, but that's just the way my whole life's been. Yeah. I mean, everything about it, I've always just jumped in and figured it out after I, there there was no master plan Jim. everything was just uh i've never asked for nothing i've never asked for a promotion i've never asked for a pay raise i i people have always you know but and i but i use that as a learning tool when i'm talking to deckhands and, and and people and stuff all the time now that i've got a few gray hairs and you know you get to that point in your life where you know you spend your whole life jumping up and down like you got springs in your feet asking people to pay attention to you. Nobody does. And then you get to a certain point where people come to you and, you know, you get that, you get enough gray hair in your beard, you get some sagely advice. But, you know, I tell them all, I, and, and nowadays, you know, we see so much in the industry and in the world now, nobody's satisfied. They want to move up. Everybody wants and expects, you know, and 
we got to have career paths. Right. And and I've always told everybody, you know, one of the things, my dad was full of isms. You know, my, one of the things I, I just repeated the other day, I said, you know, I said, I, I had something going on. I told him, I said, my dad is smiling in his grave right now. I, 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 I had a problem and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I was madder than hell and chewing everybody's out. And I turned around and I realized I had a meeting about it, trying to get to the bottom of it. And I told them all, I stopped the meeting. I said, well, I see the problem. <laughs> I said, I see the problem right here. And I said, uh, my father's smiling from his grave. Cause I said, my dad used to always tell me, son, when everybody in the world's wrong, look in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, cause not everybody's wrong. Right. You know, if, if everybody's wrong, you probably got a, a bad, your, your viewpoint probably, probably fall, false. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he uh, he always told me, he said, son, he said, be loyal, stay at one place, mm-hmm. work, work hard. And he said, work at being the best you can be. And he said, money will come. He said, don't ever chase money. And this was somebody that every decision my dad ever made was, was driven by the dollar. Right. He valued, he, I never remember having a, ever, ever having a conversation. I'd be on the boat. I call my dad up. Well, what's going on today, dad? Oh, you know, he had this campground around there. Oh, well, it was a good day today. I, you know, I, I, three people paid their lease, and, and uh, I, so-and-so donated money to patch the roads. You know, that has a going day. I, it was a terrible day. I can't, man, I've been trying to find so-and-so to get his money out of his lease. I'm like, you know, can we ever start the conversation? with well, boy, I just had a good time. Right. But, you know, he, he, it was funny. He, he lived that way, but he always preached to me, don't chase money, chase perfection. Now, my dad was a big perfectionist. And uh, uh, you could never satisfy or please him because he was always critical. Mm-hmm. If uh, what do you think about it, Pop? Eh, pretty good. But you know, if you look right over here now, you see that right there. You know, <laughs> gosh darn man, why don't you just say good job, and move on? And uh, uh, but he always strived for that perfection. That's what he always told me. He said, if you work at being, if you work harder than anybody else, and work at being the best at what you do, he said, it don't matter if you dig ditches. He said, someday somebody's gonna need the perfect ditch dug. And they're going to come to you and you're going to be able to manage your price for digging that ditch. Yep. And I think that's a lesson that, that we could all learn from, you know, and, and, and that's the way my life's been. I've never set out to plan to be anything or do anything. Matter of fact, most of the time, whatever I planned for, I ended up going 90 degrees in the other direction. Right. And I, I, I know I'm not any smarter than anybody else. <laughs> I can't tell you that. And, uh, uh, and I'm definitely not any better than anybody else. And, uh, and I can promise you my looks never got me anyway. <laughs> uh, but one thing I've always said, and I'll say it to this day, and, and I'm, I'm a lot older and I'm a lot fatter and I can't physically keep going. But I'll tell you this, there's no way I can outwork. And uh, that's all I've ever strived to do is work hard and be the best at what I'm doing at the moment. Sure. You know, I, I, I never got wrapped up in starry-eyed doing one job, but thinking about or wishing about another right and i think when you do that sometimes you i'm not saying it ain't bad i didn't have a plan um but i've just seen so many times when what i had planned never ended up and i was so gear set for that that it was a whirlwind throwing me over here but you know at the core of it i was always focused on being the best i was always focused at doing the i was very competitive and i still am sure and anything i do I want to do it better than anybody else. Right. And I, I know that's probably a character. There's a lot of people argue it's a character flaw, and I'm, I'm probably one of them. But I think that gives you the drive to do what you do the best you do. 
Right. And I think that gets recognition. Not always as soon as it should. But I can point back to every one of them folks in my road, Tim. And at some point, my hard work, not, not, my, not my success, and not the perfection that I was striving for, but the, just the hard work mm-hmm. impressed somebody that flipped that switch and sent my train down the next track. Right. And, and I think that's all you can hope for in life is, you know, uh, I've always told everybody, you know, I'm, 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 I'm uh, <laughs> I always tell everybody that, you know, my wife, God bless was the type of person. If she was standing in the room and Satan appeared with a pitchfork in his hand, he dropped the pitchfork and fall in love with her. Yeah. She's just one of them people that, uh, she, she just, she fills a social setting. People gravitate toward her and everybody loves her. And, uh, uh, She's a beautiful person inside and out. And me, um, at the at the point at the risk of sounding a little too <laughs> a little too colorful on your radio show, I'm like cheap beer. I'm an acquired taste. Um, right. You know, you, you you take the first drink out of the first beer and you kind of shiver and you want to spit it out. Yeah. But after about three or four of them, that ain't too bad. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I'm the type of person that people are going to warm up to. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, so it's it's not my – I'm not one of them personalities that just screams success. But I've always managed to do all right. Sure. And the, and the only thing when I look back at all those forks in the road and all those dark places where I was frustrated, and I, and I think what made those dark places, Tim, is, and I'm not saying you don't have to have focus now. Now, now don't take that wrong. you got to be focused. And you got to be driven. And you got to have a plan. Uh, I was a big, I was a big planner. I always, my father taught me, and I, me and my wife have always lived by a five-year plan. Where do we want to be in five years? But I, I've, I've learned real quick that I never included. And this is something mostly talked to me by my father. I never included where I personally wanted to be in a career or a path. I focused on where I wanted my life to be. Monetarily, okay, we want to get this done to the house. Right. I never worried about making enough salary to do that to the house. I worried about accomplishing that goal. If I had to work harder, I I, I didn't work at getting a pay raise to make more money to remodel the house. I worked at remodeling the house. And if that meant my first remodel, I was a young man and I wanted to remodel you know, it was big whole controversy there. Cause remember, this is my parent, my dad's parents' house that they built by their hands, and I wanted to change it. Well, I didn't sit well with my father. He thought it would be a shrine. Right. Well, it was a whole big conversation. But finally, we're in there arguing about it one day, and we're at the local restaurant here where everybody hangs out. We call it the coffee shop. And finally, Dad just told me, he said, "Well, if you want to do it, he said, I'm tired of talking about it." He said, "Just do it." And I said, "Dad, I don't have any money." And he said, "Yeah, you do." He said. Get your ass out there on the boat. And he said, don't come back till I tell you. So the first remodel we did, I helped a little bit here and there when I was home. But mainly my dad did it because my job was to go out there on the boat and make the money. Mm-hmm. So I lived on the boat the whole time he's back here remodeling this house. Well, then a little bit later, 10 years later, we had my kid and we needed to remodel just a little bit. And we added on. Well, I did that one. Me and my, me and my father. <clears throat> and uh, we did it together. And by that time, I was in a wheelhouse. So I made decent money. And I didn't, you know work a lot uh so i did more myself and this last one my father's been passed away so i did this whole remodel this whole revamp revamp of the house by myself 
But in other words, my five-year plans, everybody talks about this remodel I'm doing now. I've been two years into it. And they're like, man, I wouldn't live that way. Why are you doing that? Why didn't you just hire it done? I said, because I, I set my life up in five-year blocks. Where mm-hmm. do I want to be? Mm-hmm. But the focus that I put on those, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, I don't put focus on how I'm going to make the money to pay for it. I just work hard enough, whether I got to do the work myself or go out and work. So the point is this remodel here, I did the remodel all myself and I didn't work any extra to make the money to make the remodel. The first one though, I didn't have the know-how or the ability. My father did. So I went out and I worked continuously, literally continuously on the boat and just sent the money home for him to do it. But I didn't say, oh, well, I want to get a pay raise and be a mate. And then when I get a mate, I'm going to go borrow the money to do the house. I just went and made the money to do the house. And because I worked that hard, I got recognition and I moved up. That's where my, that's where my, this remodel for this house the first time now that I put it all together is actually what accelerated me through lead men and mates. I was always on the boat. I was the go-to guy for the, for the crew dispatch. I, was the, I bumped into every captain of the sun. Well, it don't take long. You bump into a captain and says, you know, the, the way I made lead man, was I ran into a captain that needed a lead man and liked the way I worked. Right. So he called, he called up and he said, Hey, I want this guy as my lead man. Next thing you know, I'm a lead man on the boat. Right. Well, then that man, he, he got off and another <laughs> captain got on and impressed me. And he literally right there in front of me, picked up the phone, called the office and said, this man needs to be a mate. So boom, I'm a second mate. You, you see where I'm going there. I, I never planned any of that. I never set out to be that. I always wanted to, I didn't want to, I always wanted to be a mate. I, I knew I wanted to be something. Well, then here I am. I, I know I want to get off deck. I got a neighbor that's, you know, a port engineer. He stops by and t- starts talking to me about port engineer and said, okay, well, I'm going to pick you up and bring you to work. So I quit riding over on the boats, but I'm still working every day because he's, I get off the boat and the very next day. He's out here in the yard at four o'clock in the morning honking the horn. And I go down there and work with him 12 hours a day. And I never thought about being an engineer. That's just what was next. Right. And that's where I was heading. And then, lo and behold, a conversation on the steps. Somebody convinced me it made sense to go get my license. I go get my license. I come back. Next thing you know, he throws me on the boat, tells me, don't get off there until you're a pilot. Yep. And somewhere along those rails, somebody meets somebody says, hey, you need a pilot? I got a guy that's really working his ass off. And, and I've always had focus and plans in my life, but never that detail. And I think sometimes we put too much detail on and we get so blinded in the path that we pick, we miss the opportunities around us. Right. <clears throat> when sometimes if you just lose, it's kind of like <laughs> you remember uh, uh, and, and I'm the world's worst storyteller, Tim. I'm a, I'll chase a squirrel around a tree ten times before I watch you see what's holding with it. Uh, you remember those 3D pictures that everybody went through a few years ago and you stare at them and all of a sudden you stared long enough? You see a picture? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people couldn't see a picture, but a lot of people focused. The only way you seen those pictures was to relax your eyes and quit focusing. Right. And I, I think sometimes we focus so hard we get to see the picture. Whereas if we just focus on our work and being the best we can be and working harder than anybody else, yeah. somebody will recognize you. And it might not be in the direction you want to go, but the other big, I think, key to my success, what little bit of modest success I've had, is I've never said no. Right. I can't remember one time when I've told somebody I wouldn't do something. Right. And so the two things I can, I can, the two pieces of advice I can give is I never asked for anything, 
and I never said no to nothing that was offered. Mm-hmm. I just accepted and tried to do the best job. And, and, and tell trust me, because of that, I've really got some crappy gigs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because for a long time, I was kind of labeled as the guy that would do anything nobody else wanted to do. Right. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of advantage to being that guy that will do anything nobody else wants to do. Because think about it. If, if you're trying to get something done and you can't find anybody to do it, how valuable is the guy that will do it for you? Right. So I think that kind of mentality of, of, of focus on what you're doing at the moment and make sure you're the best at the time. Right. Hold a high level of competitiveness for yourself and everybody around you without uh, too much arrogance. Never ask for anything and never say no to anything that's offered. Sure. And I think you'll get pretty far. I think that concludes uh, the bulk of this conversation there, man. But before we go, tell me about a trip down to Cumberland. Uh, just in general, what it's like? Just, yeah, paint a picture for me. Uh, a trip down the Cumberland River. Um, Cumberland River, if anybody don't know, is a little narrow river. Uh, it's full of, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an old river carved out of the... Uh, Appalachian Mountains, uh, right between where the Appalachians and the Smokies. I don't know where you divide that divide on which one's which, but you know it comes out of eastern Kentucky, uh, circles down through Tennessee and doubles back up into Kentucky and comes out right there, right above Paducah, Kentucky, right above the confluence of the Ohio and the, and the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It empties into the Ohio River. Um, it's a deep gorge river cut out of the mountains. Back in the day, uh, that river was either a puddle of rocks you could walk through or a raging torrent that swept everything in its path away when the rain had come out of the mountains. Yeah. Much like any much like any river you see out west, it's just a mountainous river. Mm-hmm. And during the TVA project, uh, you know, they, uh, that was a Roosevelt project um, through the Depression era. They took the Tennessee Cumberland, which were very similar rivers. The Tennessee was bigger. Uh, they both origin, or originate in close to the same place and follow the same general path and actually come back into the Ohio River within 10 miles of each other. Mm-hmm. Those two rivers, they dammed up into huge lakes, huge reservoirs. And they did it as well, they're, they're, they're some of the only true flood control rivers here in, the, in, our, in our Mississippi River system. Um, there's others, but I mean, those were the, those were the big first grandiose experiments with the huge locks. So you make these lakes. So it's, it's a very dynamic river as far as it's rocky when it's a river. And when it's a lake, it looks like it's this huge expanse and it's very deep, but you've got the original river in amongst these shallow, these shallow flats there, they're flooded. So you might look like you got five miles from bank to bank. And yet you're going up the original river channel and 10 feet away from your boats, one of these long-legged birds standing there looking at you. Uh, so, you you know, when you're in the lakes, you really got to follow the buoy line. When you're in the river, it's, it's there's shallow spots <clears throat> where it's shoaling and stuff, and then there's rock basically on the banks. So it's a pretty stable river as far as the way it moves. Um, it, it's got its uh, unique purposes but due to those locks. Uh, there are uh, purposes. Uh, it's got its unique... Uh, uh, attributes mm-hmm. 
uh, or characteristics, maybe you can say. It's funny, it'll it'll run, and then when they shut the locks off, those locks all generate electricity. They're all turbines. So at night, when they don't need electricity, they shut them off, you get a bathtub effect. If they shut them off from the bottom to the top, all the water continues to run down, hits the lock below it, and bounces back. So right. early, early in the morning, it ain't nothing to be northbound and go to stop and realize you're southbound. Mm-hmm. So you really got to watch the, the, the stuff moving on the river and watch when you go by fleets or, or something that's floating. Which way is it floating? So you'll know which, which direction you're pointing, if that makes right. sense. So, you know, if you're coming down the Cumberland River, you leave, we always left Nashville. Okay, there's a, there's, there's, there's a, a small navigable area above Nashville that we run to a power plant, and that's six barges pretty well max. I mean, we brought out some more, and it's very tight. But when you come out, uh, we run 12 and 15 barge toes. Uh, we used to run 15 a lot. Uh, you're talking a 300-foot wide river. Uh, very crooked. And I, 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 uh, I, I told a guy that started riding with me up there. We were up there the first first trip out, and he, 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 rode, he had one guy ride with him one time. And so we get up there, and he's by himself. This is his first trip out by himself. And we're up there at Nashville building tow. And I told him, I said, no, no, Russell, here's what you're going to see when you leave here, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, look, I said, I, I, I like about 10 mile an hour. And he looked at me and said, I ain't making no damn 10 mile an hour out of the river. And I said, oh, okay. I mean, you run, run the way you want. I'm not going to tell you how to run, but I'm just telling you, you know, about 10 mile an hour, hold up on the points, watch your stern. And then, you know, that gives you enough throttle left to shove out when you get out to go in. And so I, I'm, I go to bed. First thing I hear, West Nashville, Ben, he's missing it. <laughs> Comes down down below Haley's. He makes the steer. He misses it. But when I come up the next morning to relieve him at 5 o'clock, he looked at me and he goes, you know, 10 mile an hour is pretty good speed to come out of here. I said, yeah, yeah, it is. If you go too slow, you'll, you'll, if you go too slow, you'll outrun your steer, I guess, or it just don't, it won't stick. If you go too fast, you really got to play a slide, and you can drive out all the way and go real fast, but you really got to be on your game. But, you know, if it's one of them rivers that are a good moderate speed where you leave yourself plenty of room to push out, because it's so narrow, you know, you're, you're a 1,000 feet long in a 300-foot wide river with switchback turns. Um, so, you know, you got Cheatham Lock be your first, um, you know, when you come out of Nashville, you got some interesting scenery. It's beautiful. River. It is a beautiful river. You're in the gorges and the mountains and you're coming out and you go, you know, you're always in the hills there. Um, and then, you know, you got the big lakes, Kentucky Lake, uh, Barkley Lake, you know, Kentucky Lakes on the Tennessee Riverside, Barkley Lakes on the Cumberland Riverside. Those two rivers are connected, by the way, by canal through the lakes. <clears throat> so it's 184 miles. Leave Nashville. Uh, you come down and uh, Cheatham Lock will be next. Uh, you come down through Clarksville. There's a small railroad bridge there, a very historic railroad bridge. It was actually there during the Civil War, 120 foot wide ish. So, you know, some people like to flank that. And, you know, uh, there's some people double trip it. You, you get up there and run up there long enough and you'll just steer through it. Uh, you come on down, you got Cumberland City Power Plant. Uh, years ago, I don't think it is now, but years ago, that was when it was built like one of the largest power plants east of the Mississippi River. It, uh, they'll burn a 15 barge tow of coal daily. That's without putting any on the ground. So, big power plant there. Uh, nothing else until you get down. That'll, uh, that's where about Dover, Tennessee is about where the river starts widening out into some marshy lands. And you got some protected wildlife areas. 
and then down around Canton Bridge, it opens up into a lake, and you'll be in Barkley Lake until you get to Barkley Lock. You make Barkley Lock, and from Barkley Lock down to Paducah, that's still old school river. It's mud and sandbars with piles of rock, very, very narrow, and uh, uh, you got a lot of rock quarries down through there you got to dodge. So it's just a twisty, turny, crooked little river, mm-hmm. but it, but it's fun to drive. To me, it's like to me, it's like playing the ultimate video game as far as you know, like a race car or a, or a Mario Kart or something yeah. like that. You know, it's it, it's that small and close, and you're steering that much, and you run empty south and loads north. So, you know, um, it, it's a like I said, you you'll go from making six, seven, eight mile an hour northbound with 15 loads through the lake. Dead water, no current. You got to watch your slide because you'll slide out of everything. And then by the time you get to the lock, you're in a river 250 foot wide and the lock's turning on water and you're making a mile and a half an hour and struggling to stay off the points. Right. Uh, so you see a little bit of everything on that river and it's so close quarters. Um, the bad problem that I see with that river is if you don't watch it, you get a habit of wanting to hook the points too much because when you come off of that river, you really don't, to do that river right, you don't hook the points. You think you do because you're so close to everybody. You still run the gut of a bend just like you do in a big river. The only thing is you don't have that much river. So when you when you got a 300-foot river and you take a 100-foot wide toe out of it, you really don't see that you're off for all the points so much. Right. When you when you get on the bigger rivers, a lot of those guys come off that smaller river, and I, I'm I'm guilty of it when I watch it. You get claustrophobia in reverse. You're scared of all the water. Hmm. You want to be you want to be close to something. Yeah. And and so you really get nervous being down in the gut of a bend because you you want to be up on that point because you're used to looking at a point twenty to fifty foot away. Right. Um. It, you know, it's it's different. It really is. It's different. But I, I'll tell you this, and I'll defend this to anybody. And you're going to have you're going to have a thousand comments after this. Somebody argue with me. <laughs> but I, I I can't speak for the Mississippi because I turned down my opportunity to go over there and run the lower. But I can tell you this: I've been an operations manager now for seven years, and I have sent several people straight from that Cumberland River to the lower on 30 and 40 barge toes mm-hmm. and they've all made it yeah i think if you can run those little dynamic rivers like the cumberland river the tin tom black warrior the intercoastal canal mm-hmm. uh the illinois river if you can run those small dynamic rivers i think you can run anywhere in the world yeah uh, there's some adjustments got to be made. You got to get used to the weight, the size. You got to staying deep in the bend. Um, there's some differences, but the fundamentals of driving a boat. And the second thing you got to remember is there's no tugs up there to help. Every fleet you stop at, you do your own tow work. Right. So you get boat handling. Uh, they just that they're a good, good training ground, a good proving ground. And I think the smaller rivers are way underestimated. And uh, and, and way underappreciated for the work those boys do for what they get done up there. I mean, okay. the, the, the Monongahela, the Kanoe River, I mean, we could go on and on. There's tons of the little rivers, you know, but I think they're fun. They're dynamic. They're fast-paced. And there again, it's one of them jobs nobody wants to do it. So when you take a job that nobody wants to do and you beg for it and do it better than anybody else, 
you really recognize yeah all right well uh switch gears a little bit tell me about the transition to shoreside in your career since then oh my god it was the absolute hardest thing i've ever done hardest thing yes sir okay I'm uh, it's um that was the closest me and my wife ever came to a divorce really yes um well, over the 26, 27 years of being a towboater and being a towboater's wife, my wife was very involved with the boat and crew. Every year she came and rode a week. Every year. Every year since we've been married, she came out and spent a week on the boat with me. Okay. She fell in love with the life. She fell in love with the, with the guys. Uh, she was like their den mother for my cruise. Sure. You know, uh, guys be up there cleaning the wheelhouse in the morning. I'd call my wife up, put the phone on speaker, and we'd all sit there and talk. Hmm. <clears throat> she would uh, change recipes with the cooks. Yeah. Um, guys would blow out a pair of britches and she'd run and get them. She's chased tow boats all up and down the eastern United States. She's made crew changes for me. One year it was too snowy to make a crew change. Uh, my relief had to get off. He had something. We were so disappointed. So I ignored her. You know, we just, I, I got my wife and fired up the truck, popped it in four wheel drive and took off. And she dropped me off the boat, picked him up and took him home. Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, she's ran everywhere. <laughs> and uh, uh, they got, you know, Christmas for Christmas on the boat. Oh, anybody that's ever rode with me will tell you that uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be a little bit conceited here and say that um, uh, Christmas is on my boat were probably some of the best you ever have on the river. My wife's seen Okay. Uh, everybody got a present and uh, stockings and and she made stockings for everybody. She made mittens. She didn't have stockings. She had these like mittens made, like work glove size mittens. Okay. And she'd she'd fill them full of candy, and she'd bring candies to the boat. And it didn't matter where we were. She'd chase us down. She would find us. She got everybody's Christmas present there. Got everybody's stocking there. Um. So she was truly involved with being a towboater's wife. She loved it. Yeah. And when when I came shoreside, talk about slamming the gears. I'm home every day. And me and her didn't communicate as well. You know, you got to figure, we started out when we wrote letters to each other and we'd write a letter a day and she knew the how she she knew how fast the boat moved and she had a list of all the locks and their address and their phone number and she would mail letters ahead of me where every day I'd get it, every lock I pulled up to I had a letter. And then we gave into the cell phones. And I was one of the first ones to get a cell phone. It was old 1,500-minute uh, Rome Anywhere Talk America plan. My yeah. first cell phone was in 92 when you had to pay by the minute, 50 mm -hmm. cents a minute or whatever it was. And so we communicated a lot. And then when cell phones got common, um, you know, I just and, – and when they came up with, with headsets, I just put her in my ear. And, like, you know, my, my boy, when it came time for supper at night, She'd put me on a speakerphone and set me in the middle of the table, and I'd put my earphone in, and they were interrupted. Their dinner was interrupted by me calling traffic, and 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 the radio's going off, and and uh, and I got to sit there and be part of homework and dinner. So you know, we had our own little system, and then all of a sudden we came home. I'm shoreside, and we're not communicating that well anymore. When I'm at work, I don't have time to talk to her, and then I had people to deal with. It wasn't just sitting out there in my little box where my sole focus is my crew and, and, and thinking about things to tell my wife or I, she didn't have easy access to me. She'd call and I'd be in a meeting. So I would go with a call. I wouldn't get back to her for an hour later. And then I really disrupted her routine. She was used to being the head of the house and taking care of everything on her own. 
and now I'm here. <laughs> and right. she never did the Donna Reed life. I mean, yes, my wife was always a stay-at-home mom, so my boy always got off the bus and had a stack waiting on him, and he did homework, and then when the homework was done, she had supper done because she cooked supper while she's helping with homework, and then he sat and ate a meal, and when I was here, I sat down and ate with him. Well, then I come home, and remember, I just told you about how I did my job. I didn't go home when it was 5 o'clock. I went home when the work was done. Right. And so I'd be home at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock. She never knew. And I wasn't in the habit of like calling and telling her I'm going to be here or there. I would just, I'd go. And I put so much focus on my job, I lost focus on her. And then she was used to really being involved. Well, shore side, you know, when you're doing an office job, there's not that much involvement for the wife. So now all of a sudden she's left out. And she, you know, when I come home after being at work all day, I don't want to tell her what all I do. I don't want to recap today. I'm tired of it. I've done it. You know, I'm, I just want to rest. And so she's expecting this big, and then she don't know all the people. So she felt kind of left out. The transition from Vessel to Shoreside, the hardest part of that, besides the family part, was for me, uh, and I told you, I'm not the best of personalities. Um, being, uh, at, you know, I was a captain at 24 years old, or 25. I was, a, I was a pilot at 24. I was a captain at 25. Uh, and I was a captain ever since. I had a few stints here and there where I'd be on the back watch for one reason or another by Switch River or something. But for the most part, I was captain on the boat. And I got used to, and this is going to sound so odd, but there's social graces. Remember, I spent all my time on the boat. And when I did, I came home to the farm. I was never a big social person. I had my friends that would come to the house and hang out in the garage or something. But I'm not that guy that goes and hangs out. I don't run in a big social circle. <clears throat> so I was always surrounded by people that knew me or whatever. And, you know, and, and Tim is going to sound weird. Injecting yourself into a conversation. And, I, and I'd like to know any towboaters out there that have experienced the same phenomenon. When you sit around a group of people and talk, there's not a hierarchy. There's just a flow. Okay, I was used to, if I popped down the stairs and all the deckhands are in the galley talking, I didn't have to wait my turn to interject. Right. I was captain of the boat. Matter of fact, most of the time when you walk in the room, the focus of conversation changes to, hey, Cap, what's up? Or this, and the other, and they, they, they redirect their focus to you. So when you come shoreside and you're interacting with these people, you automatically think you can just walk up and hijack the conversation. Right. <clears throat> and, and so it was really socially hard to come shoreside. And, 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 and the frustration of teamwork. Yes, there is no greater example of teamwork than a towboat. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a different kind of team. It's a camaraderie. It's a family. It's, it, it, it's, it's one of the tightest teams you'll ever be involved with. Right. But it's not collaborative teamwork, so to speak. It's rank and file teamwork. Mm -hmm. When you come, and, and it, it relies very much on a, it's an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. You learn from the man in front of you. Right. Okay, so if all this makes sense, and I'll probably butcher this, but if all this makes sense, here you are coming from a society where everybody is either below you or above you, and typically 
the person you turn to to answer your questions is the subject matter expert that's been doing it the longest, which is, you know, typically it could be your lead man or your maid, and, and then, you know, probably it's your captain, but you, you learn who does what the best. Then you come shoreside and you've got this whole dynamic of these social collaborations where, you know, it's a give and take. I never came from that environment. I started at 18 years old in an environment where you're either telling somebody what to do or doing what you're told. Right. You don't buck rank. And hierarchy has a privilege. I'm sorry. That might sound bad to people, but it, there's a lot of truth to it. Now, you've got some captains that are more collaborative and some that are more inclusive. And, and I always thought that I was one of the guys that I ran my crew very, you know, everybody's got an opinion and I want their opinion. I don't care to argue with people. But at the end of the day, the argument only went so far. Well, now here you are, shoreside, and you've got to, you know what's going to work. You, you know where you want to go, and you've got this team of five people, and they're not all wanting to go your way, and you're wanting to pull the, the rank card, and there is none. Right. <laughs> you know? right. So, so it, 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 it's very stressful in that way, you know. So I told everybody, and this is a joke, but I told everybody for the first year I was shoreside or so, I felt like the little, uh, the little puppy running around peeing on the floor and everybody spotted me in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't do that. Right. Why, why, why can't I? <laughs> it just don't work that way. <clears throat> and I learned real, real fast. Um, oh, you want to talk about something that'll turn you into an enemy in, in, in the shoreside office environment, quicker anything <clears throat> is um, don't ever play the Trump card because you've never been there. Right. You've got to find a way to explain it to them where they understand that environment. Don't just slam the Trump card down. That don't fly well. You know, you know, the, the whole transition from from vessel to shore was very tough on me. I don't know if it is on everybody. I would hope to God it ain't. I would hope that's just my unique personality quirks that make it that way. Uh, being very outspoken, very opinionated. That's another thing. Uh, my dad used to always tell me that a, 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 a uh, opinion is a privilege, not a right. Mm -hmm. Nobody has a right to their opinion. Oh, you got a right to your opinion. You keep it to yourself. Nobody wants to listen to it. <laughs> the only time your opinion becomes something of importance is when you have enough respect from people around you to want to listen to what you got to say. Sure. I think we forget that as a society sometimes. Yeah. And I definitely forgot it when I came to your side because I thought my opinion ought to be heard by everybody. <laughs> sometimes loudly. And I was real quick to tell them why I thought I was right. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a definite culture shock. I love it. I'll tell you what I loved about it most. I was never, I have never once felt stressed in managing boats being an operations manager. Okay. You know, I, I tell a lot of people, my definition of stress is when you're making a decision that you have not the skills nor the knowledge to answer affirmatively. Mm -hmm. if you know what you're doing and you're confident in your knowledge and your ability and you're making decisions that are in your realm, then there should be no stress in making decisions because you ought to know the right answer. So if you've got a stress over something, then I think you're probably out of your league or over your head. I'm not saying you won't figure it out. I'm not saying it ain't good to push yourself. I'm just saying you're not confident in your knowledge and ability to just have the answer. So I've never felt stressed 
being an operations manager slash port captain, however you want to say it, managing boats. But I sure felt stressed fitting into the social environments of everyday human beings going back and forth to work. Yeah. Um, the fact that you had to look at somebody and interact with somebody that you may or may not like and can't tell them that. <laughs> now yeah. I know that I know that's going to come across maybe bad on, on the radio, but there's a lot of truth to that, you know. And I was from a when I was at home, I didn't have to worry about it because I only there again I only surrounded myself with people that I liked and enjoyed. When right. I was a captain on a boat. Oh, I'm not saying that every once in a while a, a person didn't come through my boat that I didn't particularly care for or whatever, but you just, but as far as the core of my crew, people are going to gravitate to your boat and you're going to get people on your boat. And this happens with every boat out there that y'all get along. You cannot spend a month at a time with nine people and not end up gravitating toward a crew full of people that all like each other. Sure. You're either going to learn to like each other or you're going to pick people like each other because two people that have abrasive personalities are not going to stay on the boat together. There's either going to be a problem and the office is going to move them. One of them is going to get out of hand and get 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 gone in some way, shape, or form. Or they're just going to move on to the, to the next boat until they find their place they feel at home. I told you about that trip where that, that Martha Denton was the first boat where I felt that click, that family, that bond. And and those those, those happen over time. And, and you finally find your boat that you fell at home with and you stay there. So being in a place where you've got to work with somebody and, and I, I'm not saying this is bad. I mean, this is life. This is, this is things that everybody deals with. I had just never had to deal with it. Now, I know that sounds so simple and so rudimentary. That's, that's teenage level, you know, lessons that I'd never learned because I had never been in an environment where you had to smile and tolerate so to speak i mean you know you do always but i mean i think you get what i'm trying to say i do uh, um you know it, it's it was difficult to adjust to that and then to shut it on and off you know I, I i lived in my job my job was a family so you you develop that level of comfortability and you but you maintained it mm-hmm. now you got to hop in the truck drive to work interact with these people uh, from 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 all kinds of thoughts and opinions, and that's needed. That's needed. I mean, you've got to have that. I see it now. Seven years later, I'm adjusted to it, and 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 I think doing well in the environment. But so I see the need for the diversity. I definitely see the need for collaboration, and I'm not a big one on rule by committee. But it also don't need to be a a monarch. Um, it damn sure don't need to be a dictatorship. Right. So you got to have this collaboration. And you got to have these varying opinions that, that drives the organization toward, you know, change. And it's a system of checks and balances. But when you've never been there and you're coming into that, it's hard. And it was just hard for me to learn. And, um, and like I said, I don't know. I'd be interested to know how many other people out there felt that same uncomfortableness when they came into a shoreside role. Yeah. If they, if, and, and, and if I'm explaining it right. Because it was very hard. Um, you know, this is going to sound silly, Tim, but one of the hardest things I had to learn was it ain't, you know, because I, I, I'd, uh, I'd get in trouble all the time. 
and my boss said he beat me up. And and my boss is a real good friend of mine. Has been since the boats. He came off close to, and loved him to death. And I think we got a, a great friendship. And always have. <clears throat> but he was beating me up one day, and he was always telling me, "Quit talking so much." And I'm like, I'd look around, and man, I'd point to a dozen people. We had one guy that we all worked with that everybody knew, don't go talk to him after three o'clock if you want to go home at five. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, why do people always, why is he always down on me for talking too much? And I look at all these other people and here I am, I felt like a fool to him. And I'm, I'm being just as transparent and heartfelt as I can be about this. I whatever, I was 47 years old. And it finally hit me. It's not that I was speaking too many words. It's not that I was talking too much. It was just, I wasn't talking about anything anybody gave a crap about hearing. Right. <laughs> you, see, you see what I mean? Um, because there again, I was in that world where, for one, the conversation that tow boaters gravitate to and have when you're that bored and that isolated is radically different than anything anybody in a social circle would talk about. Right. But for two, I was, and I know this sounds, this is going to sound so bad and so arrogant, <clears throat> but I think any mate or captain or pilot or, or chief engineer or anything would, would understand it. And, and it ain't just the boats. It, it's, it's people in other areas where subject matter experts are usually in the hierarchy of leadership. I was used to whatever I thought was the most important thing at the time was what we talked about. Right. And I was, the, by the time I got off the boat, you know, I was the guy with 25 years experience that had been a captain since I was young. I've been, so I was always the one with the answers, right? So I'm always the quote expert, whether I am or not, <laughs> you know, and that's another thing a lot of captains don't really think about it. Everybody attributes them to always having the right answer, but they, they don't always have the right answer. That's where they live in their head. At but, least there's at least there's an answer, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. At least there is an answer. Yes, yes. And so, but when you come into that environment, not everybody wants to hear it. So I learned a valuable lesson there in life at a late point. And you know, you never you never stop learning. And and I I, I think my honesty and transparency in these in these conversations like this is to point out that you never stop learning and you never stop growing within yourself. But I realized right then, when people say you talk too much, it ain't a matter of how many minutes you occupy or dominate the conversation. And it ain't about how many words you say. It's about what you say. If people are interested, and if you're communicating clearly, they'll listen all day and enjoy it. Right. I long mean, I it, love. As long as it adds value. Adds value. Yeah. And I tell people that all the time, my, my standard answer, and <clears throat> I, I hope I'm getting more cultured and uh, uh, more wisely in my ability to manage mm -hmm. from shore as I did my ability to be a captain on a boat. Trust me, we're talking about me being a captain at 40, 50, 45 years old. I wasn't always that good of a captain either. <laughs> I had my learning curve there too, right? Sure. No, nobody at 25 years old got the business of being in charge of that kind of piece of equipment with that many people. Um, and, and if you do succeed at it, you learn quick. 
And uh, you usually learn from that 40-year-old mate that walks up in the wheelhouse and has a conversation like, listen here, you certain so-and-so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, so you, that right there, being a, a young captain, taught me more than anything that age and experience have a lot more value than rank and title. Sure. And uh, because I had to learn to listen to those people or I wouldn't survive because I didn't have the knowledge. I damn sure didn't have the skill or the know-how. And I didn't have the, uh, the God-given respect that gray hair and age brings with you. I didn't have a wise, sagely appearance. About um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to kind of settle into that as I've been shoreside. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not great. I'm, I'm still not great at um, uh, communication sometimes. And I'm still a little too outspoken about my opinion and uh i'm still a little quick to judge but you know i i tell people all the time that if it don't add value to the mariner why are we doing it right and i learned that just like that right there from something as simple as somebody telling me i talk too much and me trying to figure out because it was i was so confused what do you mean i I can look i I do talk a lot i know (laughs) but i can look at a lot of people around here they talk a whole lot more than me. Sure. And, and, and they don't get told that all the time. Oh, maybe a joke gets made about how long they'll dominate you in a conversation. But if nobody is interested in the topic you talk about, if nobody cares, if nobody can pull value away from what you're saying, you know, I listen to audiobooks, Tim, mm-hmm. and I'll sit and listen to an audiobook all day long. I'll get up in the morning, put my earbuds in, fire up an audiobook. I'll be working on the farm. I'll be on the tractor. I'll listen to that book all day long, 16 mm-hmm. straight hours. And I never get tired of hearing it. Right. But it's, it's adding value. It's a book I chose that right. is either, either for sheer enjoyment and entertainment or for knowledge and, 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 and education. It's adding value to my existence. But I can't put in a book that you said read that I have no interest in that I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of. Right. Um, you know, I couldn't listen to 101 Dalmatians and, and, and the four little kittens that lost their mittens all day long getting value out of it. I'd be driving nuts. Mm-hmm. You know, about the third time playing that thing, I'd probably throw it in the trash. <laughs> <clears throat> but and that's kind of where we are thinking about it as, as, as people communicating with other people. If nobody, if your audience, is, and I, I'm, I'm developing a program right now with, with peer-to-peer sharing. And I tell all, I'm interviewing people to go out and do a certain job. And one of the things I tell them in the interview, I've got enough instructors. I've got enough people telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. I've got policy dictating what they do and how they do it every day. I need the heart of a teacher. Right. I need somebody that when that person leaves the boat, people want them back. I need somebody that word travels the work they're doing and people are calling me and saying, when can I get him on my boat? Okay. Because if you have people, it's funny about human beings. All human beings have taste. Something or somebody, we've all got to have an outlet to vent. And the quickest way to get most human beings, and I'm going to say any higher intelligence animal because I got a dog here it's the same way. If I tell him to do something, he'll do the opposite. If I ask him to do something, he'll do the opposite. You know, and, and but human beings, if you tell them to do something, 
there's a good chance they're going to lock up on you and do just the opposite, prove you wrong. Yeah. You've got to make them want to learn it. It's just like I said about you giving me a book and telling me to read it. Now, us sharing an idea, and I have respect for Tim. Oh, I'll read his book all day long. May or may not like it. We'll talk about it intelligently as to what we liked and didn't like about it. Mm -hmm. But when Tim comes to me as a supervisor and tells me, read this book and tell me what you think about it, I'm probably going to hate it. I may or may not read it, and I probably won't get a lot out of it. Just because why do I need to read Tim's book? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. We've heard it all the time. Think about it. That's your basic default knee-jerk reaction. But when, when I come to you and say, Tim, I notice you read books all the time. Can you give me one that'll help me? I'm really struggling here. The odds say if I've asked and I'm receptive, I'll learn something from what you give me. And that's what I tell these guys when, when, I'm, when I'm interviewing them. I got to have somebody that can go out and make them want them back. Because right. when they want you to come, they'll listen and they're receptive and they'll right. learn. And, you know, communications on any level in any organization on any boat, I really always thought that when I walked out of the wheelhouse and I came into the galley, that my opinion mattered because I was the captain. Right. What I learned is my opinion mattered because they respected me enough to want it. Sure. I never got that until I came shoreside and had to relearn that and re-earn it. And it all hit me that one day because of my boss beating me up for a year or two or however long it was on about talking too much and me being frustrated. You, you don't know how many times I came home at night and said, talk to my wife about it. And she tried to explain it to me. He tried to, everybody tried to explain it to me. And one day, I can't remember who said it, but somebody told me, Turbo. It ain't a matter of how much you're saying. It's a matter of what you're saying and who you're saying it to. Right. I can have the same conversation with five different groups of people. Four of them thought it was gibberish. And the one group would have embraced it and sit there and talk all day. Right. It only added value to that person. You got to know your audience. And you got to add value. And I'll tell you another thing I've learned from being shoreside that I, it was a given on the boat. I never thought about it, but I always knew it because I was the captain. But when I came shoreside, I was just Mike. I just turbo. Mm -hmm. You got to watch what you say. Yeah. Because somebody's always listening. Right. And good or bad, somebody's going to take your advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you, you, better, you better watch what you put out there. Sure. Um, good and bad, you know. So, yeah, long story to sum it up, Tim, that transition from vessel to shoreside at 45 years old, I have loved it. The last seven years, I was so tired. I, my first love will always be a boat. I love running a boat. I love being a tow motor. I, I told you when I made that decision. How, how difficult it was. Mm -hmm. But I never regretted it. Right. I, my life has been so rich. And I've met so many people. And I've had so much help. And I, I, I feel like I have carved a path into a culture and that, that time is forgotten in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. And I would never trade it for anything in the world. But I was tired of doing the same job. I didn't realize how tired until I came shoreside. Right. And at, four, at 45 years old, to be opening up a new set of challenges like we just talked about. And to have to face these challenges and overcome these challenges, I really think it stopped me from being a dinosaur. It's reset my clock. Okay. I was really starting, you know, I told you by the time they asked me to go and move rivers, get on the bigger rivers, I was too comfortable. I liked where I was. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything to prove. I was at the top of my little bitty pile. Mm-hmm. And I liked it there. And I was comfortable. I had that big duck and a little puddle syndrome. And I liked my place in the food chain. And so to be able to cut the stress that was those first couple of years of shaking me out of that, uh, you know, stagnation that I developed in my own personal growth, that stress opened me up and, and I loved it. I loved the challenge. I loved to be able to do something I didn't know how to do. Mm-hmm. I loved having a, you know, I'm not saying there wasn't harder jobs. I'm not saying I was the best pilot, but no means no, I was not. And that was one of the things that made my job so much fun is I wasn't the best pilot. I had to work and I love work and I love working hard and I don't handle boredom very well. My mind and idle time does not coincide. Right. Um, you know, I've got to keep active and moving and, and uh, you know, I love to work and to come at 45 years old. And it was like walking to a gymnasium lined wall to wall with doors. And the stress came from being in this big gymnasium and not knowing which way to go and not knowing what, not knowing what door to open. And the stress came from opening the wrong door about nine times out of 10 before I opened the right one. Yep. But man, once I got the mat down pat, I love the growth and development that it presented me. And you know how many people get to totally change careers, totally change job paths, totally go in a new direction, get to reinvigorate yourself and work harder than they've ever worked in their life, struggle more interpersonally than they've ever struggled before and, and, and get challenged to succeed when most people are winding their life down and getting ready for retirement. I'm winding up and trying to figure out how to succeed in a new environment. And I never had to switch companies. I never had to lose job security. I never had to lose money. The opportunities have been open to me have been overwhelming and they've been awesome. And I wouldn't go back right now and change one single thing that's ever happened to me, Tim. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't be happier. And it's the river and the people in it. And the, you know, I'm a high school educated idiot and I've been offered opportunities and a, a lifestyle and a monetary reward that most people with a college degree couldn't attain. Right. And it's because of the industry we have, the company. I'm going to say uh, Ingram Barge Company is one of the finest out there. We're not the only one. But I'll tell you what makes Ingram one of the finest is at the core of our business, we still honor the traditions and the culture of the river. Right. We we still reward, just like the examples I've used in my life, the people that work hard. We still believe in an apprenticeship and we still believe, uh, and, and this is not just Ingram, but this is, this is most of your companies out there that, that knowledge that is handed down through that apprenticeship of hand to mouth 
you know, through through a man's career is what makes this industry what it is. And right. I think I think Ingram and a lot of other companies out there, you know, we uh we get it. And and I couldn't I couldn't find a better place to be in my life to the point that, you know, I I, I brought my, my my son into it, mm-hmm. and he worked on the boats, and now he's shoreside, and he works in uh, fleet logistics, wanting to get into uh, large logistics, and uh, you know there, there's I'll put it to you this way, take the name off the stacks, take anybody's company logo off. Mm-hmm. There is not a better industry, not a better group of people. Not a more diverse, well-rounded, you know. Uh, I always felt bad because I didn't go to college, so I spent a whole life on that boat being locked up. I would come with a satchel full of books every time I'd catch the boat. Mm-hmm. I'd have I'd have a backpack full of books. I couldn't spell all that well. I didn't do well in spelling, and probably because I didn't care about English that much. And so I started doing crossword puzzles. For about three or four years there, I did crossword puzzles every day, all day long, book after book after book, crossword puzzles, and I carried dictionaries and sources with me to expand my vocabulary, my knowledge of spelling. So I self-educated myself. It was a hard road. Um, but, you know, you'd be surprised how many people out there on them boats have a vast wealth of knowledge. If you think about it, a lot of guys come from all different areas, backgrounds, past works. You know, if you're sitting on a boat and you're getting ready to remodel your house and you want to put tile on the bathroom, ask around. I'll bet you you know a tow motor that in some previous life is hang tile. And they'll either come to your house and help you or they'll tell you how to do it. Right. And, uh, you know, I bump into people all the time, Tim. Uh, back when they first opened that big uh, Opry Mills Mall down in Nashville, Tennessee, I'm walking through the mall and I hear somebody yell, Hey, Turbo. Um, my wife gets a kick out of it. We've been in Louisville. We've been in St. Louis. We've been all over the place. And I cannot go somewhere that I don't recognize somebody or somebody recognize me. <clears throat> and I have met people from all over the United States. And, uh, I just about be hard pressed to say that there ain't very many towns within 50 mile of the river from the Appalachian mountains to the, to the uh, Mississippi that you couldn't drop me off and I couldn't make a couple of phone calls and get somebody to come and help me. Sure. And, and, uh, and that's the kind of tight knit group. We, they might run and drift from company to company, but at the core of it, they're all, a loyal group, you know, even people you don't like, you love them. Yeah. No, I've, uh, <laughs> I've been a part of this industry for about what, seven, seven and a half years now. And it's, it's, I've found it to be one of the best kept secrets in the country. Here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know of any other, maybe the military, but I don't know of any other industry that has the connected brotherhood that we have amongst the river industry. Um, right. And, I, and I'm sure it's that way when you go like out east and you get into the maritime industry with the fishing and stuff and, 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 and merchant mariners. You know, we're, we're our own little circles. <clears throat> but I can tell you this, there might be other groups like us, but there's no group better than us. <laughs> I'll take our, pe- our people do it. Our, our people do it well. Yeah. And, uh, and we're getting, and at the heart of us, we're good people. So, well, listen, hey, Turbo, I, I uh, appreciate you sharing your story and taking time with me here today. Okay, man. Be careful, Tim. Thanks for, thanks for that invite. Thanks a lot, sir. Talk to you later on.